Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Retro Mecha Podcast. I'm your host Ian and as always I'm here with Craig. Say hello Craig. Hi everyone. How are you doing Craig? Not too bad, yeah. Yeah, pretty good as a matter of fact. Um, good. Nice to see everything um, is kind of uh, lessening a little bit uh, with, with the restrictions and that. So yeah, things actually are been out the- for a meal and stuff which is nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, I was out for a meal with my wife last night and we've done a few things. So yeah, things are definitely starting to return to normal in the UK, which is nice. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it's uh, really good. Yeah, it's nice to see weather could do with uh, improving a little bit. But, oh, absolutely, um, yeah, but that's for you. Yeah, I'll take the small wins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I'll take the small wins. <laughs> it's uh, better to, uh, to have a bit of freedom in a post-pandemic world than have some sunshine. It is, it is. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to, got to look at the big picture, haven't you? You have, you have, absolutely. Um, so we're in double figures, so mm. episode 10. Woo-hoo. So yeah, double figures <laughs> at last. Yeah, which is nice. Um, Certainly I is. I think, you know, four years after we started, so uh, we're here. Yeah. Um, before we get into our main review today, um, there's a few other things we kind of want to just kind mm-hmm. of touch upon. Some big news, which is kind of a bit old news now, but it, it's worth talking about on here, um, mm-hmm. which is that uh, Big West and Harmony Gold have kind of seemed to have sorted their differences out um, in yeah, terms finally. of lacrosse licensing. So finally, exactly. <laughs> um, seeing as that we've covered, you know, we, we're doing a retrospective on the lacrosse franchise and, you know, we've done the first two parts of that. So, yeah, this is um, something, you know, it's been rumbling on for years and years. Mm. I think, you know, if you, if you read the you know, the press release, it kind mm-hmm. of says that the stuff before 1987 isn't going to get licensed or won't get any immediate releases, which kind mm. of excludes the original TV series which and Do real, You Remember real, Love. Real downer for me. I, I love the original show. Yeah, yeah, you know, and every Macross fan, and I think even just sort of anime fans or fans of retro anime in general would love to own... Mm. You know, a nice uh, licensed copy, mm-hmm. a Blu-ray copy of uh, "Do You Remember Love?" So, Absolutely, uh, yeah. It's kind of like the Western fans' dream at this point, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Holy Grail! <laughs> so it's a start, you know. It's a start, mm. you know. We might actually get that Western Blu-ray release of Macross Plus mm-hmm. Zero, which you know I, I wasn't a great fan of, but you know there are the, mm. the fans of it. So Macross Seven and and some of its spin-offs, you know, that's the going to be the next part of our. Um, Mm-hmm. Retrospective is to is to cover the um, across seven TV yeah, series. So, looking forward uh, to that because it's been a long time since I saw that one. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it as well. Be um, interesting to see it with, uh, you know, kind of eyes that have seen the rest of mm. the uh, important kind of classic Macross in now in sequence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> very. Very true. Since so, the West yeah, that's... tended to uh, sort of chuck these things out of order, and we got and I got Macross two first. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that the same for me as well. It was yeah, that, absolutely. I think yeah. as we talked about on the you know the last part of the retrospective, you know, Macross two came out on VHS and From DVD Kiseki, in the yeah. UK, and that was the first, yeah the Kaseki releases, and uh, yeah, that was the first I saw before I saw mm-hmm. the main TV series and, and all the rest of it. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the Western uh, fans' experiences are very. Strange one, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm I'm pleased for that. I, I mm. you know the fact that Me too. we're going to get some stuff, and you know, fingers crossed, it does change, and you know, things, you know, the the original series and and the Do You Remember Love movie get out. I mean, I can kind of understand it. I can 
I can understand they might want to push some of the newer stuff to get fans, yeah. you know, the stuff with Delta and, and, mm-hmm. and Frontier and that. The original TV series is nearly 40 years old now, so, mm. I could, you know, and it, yes, it looks dated and and, and all the rest of it in, in places, so I can understand the try and recapture that fan base yeah. and, you know, drive sales. You, yeah, you push sense. the newer stuff, so I, I can understand. From a business understand. point of view there. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Um but nonetheless, it's uh, great news for Macross fandom in the West. The second thing I just want to touch on, so the uh, sequel to SSSS um, Gridman, SSSSS Dinozenon started airing about eight weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And when the first episode came out, there was this initial kind of flurry of moans on Twitter about <laughs> the uh, CG animation, um, which kind of I was a bit surprised at because mm. for me... You know, the CG animation doesn't look kind of anything different to a lot of mecha shows from the last 15 years or so. Yeah, well, that's you know. the thing. If you've, if you've been following mecha that long, we kind of have had this transition to a lot more CG. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everything from kind of, you know, the sort of era of like Knights of Sidonia to like, you know, kind of now. It's, mm. you know, there's been, there's just been a lot of that stuff, hasn't there? So I don't know what they're getting sort yeah. of uh, steamed about really yeah i couldn't quite work out what i mean it, it was a it was a very very short flurry that kind of came and went with the with the mm. airing of the first episode but it it was just a bit like well what do you expect what would you expect <laughs> this is this is you know this is the uh, 21st century and you know cg has taken over a long mm. time ago so well, was, i mean it was a bit of a storm in the teacup really but yeah it did take me a bit by surprise Yes, as exactly as these things often are. Yeah, but I but, mean, um, I must admit, I haven't actually watched um, the the uh, the show. But I've seen Gridman, but I've not uh, I've not sort of gotten around. I'm not rewatching anything um, that's airing at the moment. But yeah, I mean, I have seen I have seen a few clips and things shared on Twitter though, and it and to me, it, it looks not only is it actually does it look fine, but it is as you say very much in line with what we've seen over the last God knows how many years now. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching it, and yeah, I mean, it's a very, very good show. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, really enjoying it. But yeah, it just looks, I don't know, it just looks a lot of, you know, mm. CG mecha stuff that's been, mm. especially in the last decade. So yeah, yeah I just I just couldn't understand it. So uh, does it, Is um, it packed as, with as many references as Gridman was? And in jokes and callbacks? To yeah, I mean, classics? it's got, yeah, I mean, because the last few episodes have started to link back to Gridman as well. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, cool. So yeah, no, it's it's well worth watching. Definitely well Excellent. worth watching. I'll check um, it out. I love love the original. I quite yeah. like the live action one actually. I don't don't yeah, watch see, a lot of Tokyo, seen... but I like the uh, I like the original Gridman. Um, yeah, I've not seen the. Yeah, I mean, I haven't got that reference point from the mm-hmm. um, the original live action um, show. So, uh... and the final thing which uh, I want to talk about, which is something that's quite dear to both yes, our hearts, really, absolutely. Craig, isn't it? Um, mm. So a few weeks ago, Manga UK. Um, announced that it was changing its name to Funimation UK, mm. basically, um, and that the the manga name as a licensor has disappeared from the UK market. Now, this mm. is significant because Manga Entertainment, back in 1991, was the company that kind of really got yeah. anime fandom and licensing going in the UK when they Absolutely. released um, Akira in 1991 and then followed it up with Fist of the North Star and everything. So... You know, you and I grew up in the 90s on yeah. 
manga entertainment's releases really. absolutely um yeah you know and we wouldn't be here today probably no. doing this if it really wasn't for manga entertainment probably not you know, it'd be really interesting to, to to see a sort of parallel universe where uh manga entertainment didn't um you know release all that stuff because i quite like me games who knows maybe i would have found out more about anime through uh, a lot of games with anime style mm. visuals and stuff but who knows <laughs> That's yeah, a totally was, different timeline. Because <laughs> Manga Entertainment kickstarted it, you know. Yeah. And then all the other licenses, Kiseki, Western mm-hmm. Connection. East to West. East to Pioneer. West. And all, they all followed in, in the UK mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, we also so, got Anime Igo, but it was under the name of Anime Projects, wasn't it? It was, under it the was banner yeah. of Anime Projects. was kind of like a... And, and so, you know, the Pioneer and Anime Go were already going in the, in the US um, mm-hmm. at that time. So... You know, it was for the UK market, and it was interesting to whether you know those American companies would have kind of got going maybe a bit later in the nineties because possibly with the with manga sort of flooding the the market and, and entering the market, it obviously created the opportunity for the American companies mm-hmm. to enter the UK market because it was like, oh, actually, there is a market for this yeah. stuff here, so there's you already know, we'll a enter it. for us there to kind exactly. of distribute stuff and you know that's there's i'm so nostalgic about that era because as we've talked about before you know there was that kind of thrill of discovery wasn't there mm. you know you would you would get a video um watch it find out it was you know you, you, I mean, there was there was magazines we had manga mania we had anime uk and stuff so you could read reviews and kind of got a mm. bit of an idea of what the um what it was like before you bought but I often find I disagreed with a lot of reviews. <laughs> so <laughs> it was nice to like pick the stuff up and see it for yourself. But that's that whole thrill of discovery of seeing trailers on um on the video for something else mm. that looked really good. Um, yeah. reading about like a whole manga car's career and all of the adaptations of his work or a director or a animation yeah, yeah. supervisor or something and in everything that they've done and thinking, Oh, this looks good, this looks good, oh adding this one to the list. Yeah, and definitely. There's just this massive kind of thing where you just your your list of titles that you wanted to watch just grew and grew and grew. The fu- the funny thing is about the modern uh, experience of being an anime fan is for me and you there are still some titles from that era which were only getting translated now either via mm, fan sub or official right. means. Yeah. There's only now is some of that stuff getting ticked off our list. But what a thrill yeah. at the time discovering all this stuff it was. Yeah. It was great. And, what a, and, what an era. Yeah, I know, and who can forget that iconic trailer reel, you know, with mm. um, Celtic Frost, the heart beneath, mm. playing over it, you know. Um, yeah. When I go, I go back and watch that on YouTube now, and I get very, very nostalgic. Yeah, it is. It's extremely nostalgic, you know. isn't it? And and the thing is, there's so many, like, iconic shots from loads of different anime that yeah, burned yeah. into your mind, equally because you watched them and loved them, but equally because of that trailer as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember one of the first things that kind of really stuck in my mind was the uh, echo jumping from yes. missile to missile missile yeah yeah that is a great sequence apparently tezuka once commented on how great that was oh really <laughs> yeah that's just that's something i read i don't know if that's true or not but it's interesting anyway because there's the bit from fist of the north star where the the statue heads yeah Ralph catches fist, the two you know. heads in each other yeah yeah and then, you know, there's various sort of clips from um, Odin in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Akira and um, yeah. all sorts of stuff. Uh, Venus Wars. Is Venus in there. Wars, that's right, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just yeah, it's a very... The album Vanity Nemesis, which The Heart Beneath comes from, I think, you know, it's a decent album. It's got a couple of really standout songs, that The Heart mm-hmm. Beneath being one of them. But when I go back and listen to that album, I still was just like, you know, it's just... Yeah. As soon as that riff starts... 
at the beginning. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> manga video in the early 90s <laughs> yeah uh... yeah absolutely no it was it was yeah, I've, I've got um i was lo- looking through some uh, old stuff recently and i found all kinds of um little promo things and booklets and mm. catalogs and that with a lot of the old titles in and even just flipping through those that track was just kind of in my head you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to watch um because manga you know did a blu-ray release of wicked city and um, mm-hmm. demon city shinjuku and stuff and on, on blu-ray and you know whenever i go back to something like that i just i just expect that trailer yeah well that's to the play thing. at it's, the beginning like you know pavlov's dogs it's like conditioning isn't it you know you, yeah yeah you, you expect <laughs> to get that kind of um how can i put it a uh, sort of endorphin hit from it you know yeah yeah <laughs> your brain's yeah. waiting for it because it's conditioned to to sort of uh you know to kind of um it's just associated with the two the two are yeah inseparable I know, now I know so yeah Manga Entertainment which became Manga UK is you know no longer it's now Funimation so it's yeah. it's very much a, a sad you know whatever 30 years you know mm. they lasted which is I, th- I think you know given the ups and downs of the anime market yeah um, during that period pretty good innings really know, I think always quite interesting from manga entertainment stroke UK's perspective. If you look at their back catalogue, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very interesting kind of chronicle of how the anime industry has changed. Mm. If you look at the titles they were releasing and, yeah. you know, how they changed and, you know, what, you know, the stuff that they kind of, the back catalogue, they kind of abandoned to pick up mm. the newer stuff and, and how mm. they changed, to, you know, to try and keep going in the UK market is... Um, quite fascinating really yeah i mean um, if you look at the if you were to look at the release dates in order you'd see a really interesting shift as well away from the sort of you know kind of uh tabloid enraging kind of sex and violence titles exactly two more kind of varied in sort of uh interesting sort of works there you know there's mm. towards the end of the sort of vhs era they're a lot of releasing a lot of like kind of lighter stuff and sort of fancy yeah. stuff and a lot but you know you've got more comedy things and stuff like that and Thing. It was it was quite an interesting shift as it went on. Yeah, so Manga UK end of an era. Mm, Very sad to see literal. the name disappear. Yeah, like I say, I'm I am quite sad to see that. Yeah. And that logo, you know, <clears throat> just because I you probably did. I had that T-shirt with I that did. logo on it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I was a member of the manga club actually. Yeah, I was as well. Yeah, yeah. used to used to send those little tokens away from the VHSs, and you could get posters for like yeah, about a fiver right. or something. Had yeah, like the Wicked City right. one, uh, Fist of the North Star one, and partly about one various others. Yeah, but that was it. it was it used to get quite a cool little newsletter called the magazine, which I've still got a few of actually. I have to share some of this stuff on Twitter actually. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I got, got any quite of that a lot stuff, of unfortunately. Things various like house about. moves and mm. um, stuff, you know, kind of got lost along the way, really. So, mm. uh, which is a bit of a shame. So, uh, yeah, I had the manga pin. I had a, I had a white T-shirt. The, the one on the black background. And... I actually had the the jacket, you know, the sort of black jacket oh, with really? the embroidered manga oh, really? patch on it. Yeah, I used to get grief about that at school, actually. <laughs> 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 I mean, people didn't really know. There was a lot of there was wasn't many people in my school who knew what uh, anime was. But I used to I used yeah. to get uh, they thought it was an insult to call us manga man, but I didn't really mind. <laughs> <laughs> Right, the main content of today's podcast. So as 
we said at the end of uh, the last episode, we're covering Spirit Hero Wataru. We're going to review the first series only. We're not going to do a retrospective on this. Um, there are, we, you know, we've still got the, the Macross retrospective and mm-hmm. there's some other things I would want to cover from a retrospective point of view. But I think given its position in sort of mecha history and, and mm-hmm. all the rest of it and, and what happened, it's, you know, I, I really, really wanted to cover it. So we're going to do the first series. So, uh, Spirit Hero Wataru was a massive success for Sunrise. Um, it was very, very popular in Japan. Mm. Um, so the original series started airing in 1988. As I said, it was a huge hit and um, it spawned you know, sequel OVAs in 89 and 93 and some a sequel TV series in 1990 and then a kind of retelling TV series in 97. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and it's been like an endearing kind of popularity um because it even got you know a series of shorts last year um as part of the bandai spirits uh tamashi like a 30th anniversary Mm -hmm. type thing which were kind of disrupted by uh, well the the production of which was uh disrupted by the the covid outbreak but yeah it's you know it's got a very legacy definitely Mm. it is you know very 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 popular um got aired in france in 1990 as well i wasn't aware Um, of that that's interesting yeah, yeah. It got released in China. It was quite mm-hmm. popular there. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's one of those things that's uh, very, very popular. Mm-hmm. What was your introduction to Wataru, Craig? Um, it was sort of uh, seeing information about it online. Um, you know, probably oh, it's probably the early 2000s, you know, sort of researching uh, mecha shows. And I remember seeing a lot of the sort of super-deformed... Uh, kind of well the sort of chibi-esque kind of uh, mecha and wondering mm. what they were from you know and kind of doing a bit of uh, sort of digging in that way i remember seeing toys and stuff online and you know kind of learning a bit more about the series that way um and it was another one of those many series that i never got around to until the podcast and i actually held off watching to sort of uh, give a kind of fresh opinion on when we did this review um I, th- I mean the thing is i probably would have checked it out years ago had there been some fan subs available um, you know, back in the day when I was first sort of getting into anime and that, you know, well, I'll say when I was first getting into, into more into mecha and stuff. So, but um, yeah, so it was just kind of through sort of online research and kind of, you know, stuff like that. Um, I did also uh, sort of encounter um, something about the game. There was a game on the yeah. PC engine. Yeah. And I remember watching uh, a YouTuber's uh, sort of channel, uh, Johnny Millennium, where he was talking about this game called Keith Courage in Alpha Zones. That actually is a reskinned Wataru game. Yeah, yeah, like it was one of those things in the eighties where they didn't have the license or or they or they didn't think it would do particularly well with sort of anime visuals, so they reskinned all the characters and stuff and sort of changed the name. So that was yeah. another, another sort of uh, introduction to it. As I kind of I knew a little bit about the video game before I actually saw the series. Yeah, because it like all these things, it was popular to get a game on the the PC engine. Um, yeah, and, like, and as you say, you know, and then got you know re-released as Keith Courage in, on the Turbo Graphics in in mm-hmm. the US. So, and again, probably no one realizing what it was <laughs> yeah, at the time exactly, as well. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking about when we came on before about uh, Black Belt, the old Master System game, which was actually a Hakuta no Ken game, and they they referenced that in the uh, Fist and All Star game because there's a there's, you can play it. On an old SG one thousand, the sort of Japanese Master System, and this, oh, right. <laughs> this it's, it's like it's built in, and you can play it. And the guy's like, "Oh, I can't get past that uh, blonde guy," <laughs> which is obviously Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
great little yeah intro i mean the same I, you know i kind of i kind of got uh, sort of learned about it um in the early mm-hmm. sort of early 2000s and it was one of those things cuz you know when i started going on forums at that time you know it was one of those things that kept cropping up mm. and over the last 20 years you know it it's one of those things that you constantly kind of see even on twitter earlier in the year i saw the fan arm for it. Um, there was a thing in the in the Super Robot Chronicles book about it as well. So mm-hmm. that's you know that kind of sparked that off in like 2002. Um, in the late 2000s, someone started fan subbing it, and I watched a few episodes, probably the first five or six originally back then, but it, it never the, the fan sub never completed. And then yeah, probably five or six years ago, I, I found a complete fan sub of it. And I planned to watch it at the time, but then when I was kind of formulating this podcast and looking at what I wanted to review, you know, Wattery was something I definitely wanted to cover. So mm. it was like, well, actually, I, again, I kind of held off watching it until um, until we got round to it um, now. So yeah, like I say it's in Western fandom. It's like I say, it's something that's always been there and it's always been intriguing. Especially haven't seen the first few episodes of it. It was like, oh yeah, you know, and I won't say too much about it now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it was kind of quite different. Um, yeah. And certainly back then, I hadn't really seen anything that was probably quite like Wataru, mm. you know, sort of 10 or 15 years ago, you know, when I, when I saw those handful of episodes. And Wataru has a really, really interesting, so if you look at, if you look at the kind of context of, of where it kind of sits in, mecha history and, mm. and stuff through through the 80s and, and early 90s Rataru gets you know kind of comes off the back of a super robot Galat which came out in in 84 you know sort of mm-hmm. four years before for this and I think you can really at sunrise draw a line back to Zabungle because I think there's a lot of art style and sort of visual references and if you look mm. at the sort of gag humor that's in Zabungle and in Galat um you can clearly see that in in Wataru and and Suji Uuchi, who directed Wataru, sort of immediately after Wataru, he would direct a TV series called Granzort, mm. and then he basically for the next ten years was either directing a Wataru series or OVA or a Granzort series mm. or OVA, and he was kind of back in and thrown, and he even yeah. did uh, Yamato Takaru as well, he was chief director, which was done at a, another studio. Uh, in that time, which is another kind of similar kind of adventure adventure sort of comedy, comedy mystical. adventure comedy type series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and, and you say chibi, but I think really, you know, Galat was what was kind of really the start of the, mm-hmm. the SD, um, Robo Boom. you know, the super deformed <laughs> style because mm-hmm. SD Gundam came out a month before this, you know, and if you look at Galat, you know, with its, you know, the super deformed robot, because the robot in Galat, in its kind of super deformed form, there's a bit in it where it springs white wings, just like the Zabungle, you know, which is mm. where I think, you know, if you look at that lineage. Yeah, you can kind you know, of see the DNA Bungle, going back yeah. to that show, yeah. Yeah, you see Zabungle to Galat, to Wataru, to Granzort. Mm-hmm. Um and then to Lord of Lords Reunite as well, which came out in 94. So, which is, again, has that kind of super deformed sort of mecha style. Mm-hmm. So if you look at that period it, from sort of 88, um, well, if you said 84, but if you look at the start of Wataru mm-hmm. all the way through to the late 90s, you know, there was a, like a solid 10-year thing where Sunrise was producing this kind of super deformed... Sort of SD know, thing, robot just, shows. And... Yeah, because um, Tetsuro Amino who directed Galat, would 
direct. He didn't direct the first SD Gundam OVA, but he directed all of the singles, Mark Two, Three, Four, Five, SD Gundam's Counter Attack. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> it's no coincidence. You know, all these people were doing this stuff. You know, because those mm-hmm. OVAs ran from sort of '88 all the way sort of through the early to mid '90s as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Sunrise was producing an awful lot of this sort of super deformed um, content. You know, which sort of was, stuff for, for younger you know, audience, which, I would say. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and Ashy Productions would jump on it with NG Night, Lamuni and Forty when that series got released in 1990, and that would go on to spawn, you know, and Forty Fire and a load of OVAs and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So, and I think you know that style you still saw in the 2000s. So obviously mm-hmm. Guren Lagen, yeah, a lot of the mecha you see in that you can directly see. Oh yeah, definitely influenced I mean, it's in the fact in here. That, you know, when you first uh, sort of. Uh meet uh, the sort of titular mecha and that, you know, it's basically like a squat little head yeah. with, with legs and arms and that yeah. is exactly the sort of thing they used to find in these uh, in these sort of chibi robo shows or SD robo shows, whatever you want to call them. Um, but there's, there is an int- really interesting legacy of these and I feel like these get overlooked a little bit more in the West. Mm. Yeah, um, definitely. Because they're yeah. not kind of gritty, serious mecha shows or Gundam shows or, you know, sort of real robot shows or what have you. Um, yeah. I think it's the, a lot of anime that's aimed at sort of younger audiences tends to get more overlooked, unfortunately. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, it is a shame because it's just, I mean, the last bit on that, there's a show called um, Hikarian as well, which came out in the early 2000s, which again has that kind of SD, super deformed style. So, you know, it was it was a big influence. And Discotech has released all of the um, NG Night Lamuni mm-hmm. anime now on, on two box sets. Um, but Galat, any of the Wataru, Ryu Knight, Mm-hmm. Um, none of that, you know, the SD Gundam stuff has, you know, all the original SD Gundam stuff at least has never got a release in the West. Um, yeah. So you know, and it's it's a shame. It's I think, and I th- we'll talk about this a bit more in the in the review. But I th- I think it could be quite successful. Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think you know, so. It's, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, to be honest with you, I think there is a sort of bit of there's such a strong fandom for Gundam um, mm. that I think you know in the in the UK. Uh, and the US, you know, people, there's people who just buy pretty much anything to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they could definitely um, release uh, some of this stuff on disc and uh, and people would buy it. Absolutely. Definitely. So there's the kind of context of where Wataru sits in, you know, the, the mecha fandom. Um, so it's, uh, so mm. we'll now get into our main review and talk about the show itself. Absolutely.
Mashin Iyudin Wataru is a 45-episode TV series that ran from the 15th of April 1988 to the 31st of March 1989. It was directed by Shuji Iyuchi, uh, which again we've said did all of the, the Wataru OVAs, Granzor and Yamato Takaru. Character design was by Toyu Ashida of Fist of the North Star fame, and uh, we've talked about before. Um, music was by uh, Junichi Kanazaki and Satoshi Kodakura, and the mecha design was by Kazunori Nakazawa. Wadaru is a seemingly ordinary school kid who is whisked away to the mystical land of Mount Sokai. Once there, he learns he is part of a prophecy about a saviour who will defeat the evil sorcerer Duakadar and his demonic forces and bring peace to the world. So as always for a TV show, we'll start with our review of the first episode to see how well it gripped us, how effective it was in in making us want to watch the rest of the series. So the first episode starts off with a mysterious dragon kind of floating through the sky and we get this narration over the top that talks about a saviour coming to kind of save the world. We get an orb that kind of flies through into our hero Wataru's room and you kind of see him glowing above the bed and bonds with Wataru and then the dragon then flies into a lake. The following morning, Wataru wakes up late for school. You know, he's this kind of typical, you know, everyday kind of kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And his mum kind of sends him off on his way to school. And on the way to school, he, he goes via the uh, this lake, or the Dragon Lake, as it's called. Yeah, and there's a bit of a legend about the lake, isn't there? Yes. Um, say that this dragon will eat naughty children. Because, so, yeah, he's, he's skating to school and he trips over these beads that mystically appear. And he hears a voice at the shrine, doesn't he? Yeah. And he, he then prays, having, you know, knowing the legend about the dragon. <laughs> he sort of <laughs> prays respectfully and slightly fearfully <laughs> in case he gets eaten, then skates off on his way to school. And when he's at school, we get introduced to um, his kind of main rival at school, Shun, who's kind mm-hmm. of like this clever kid, and, and Yumi, which is this girl whose affections they both fight over. At school, they have to build like a clay model. And so Shun and Wataru get into this competition about building a, a you know a robot. Shun produces this thing that looks very much like a a Gundam or a, or a real, know, a real robot. robot. Sort of. Whereas uh, Wataru's is, is you know one of the chibi robots we've sort of discussed. You know, it's super deformed and squat with a big head and sort of small yeah. limbs and stuff. And Shun kind of has a good laugh at it, doesn't he? And he's kind of like, "What is this?" Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then um, Wataru puts the the beads around this sort of clay model's neck and he, he takes it to the shrine and leaves it at the shrine. At which point the dragon appears, Wataru then ends up waking up in this sort of mysterious land, doesn't mm, he? He's kind of whisked off to what we're soon to be introduced to as Mount Sokai. And when he's moved to this land, that's where we kind of get introduced to the, the sort of crux of the story, mm. you know, about Doakadar, you know, taking over Mount Sukai and, the, you know, all the colours of the rainbow have gone and, and Wataru as the saviour is, you know, has to go and defeat yeah. Doakadar and bring all the colour back to the rainbow. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he, he has to travel through the, the seven different levels of Mount Sukai uh, to defeat Doakadar. So that is kind of neatly setting everything up. Wataru then kind of gets, you know, he gets kind of armoured up and everything, doesn't he? Mm, he gets um, his crown as well. Yes. Um, and and we more get, importantly, a sword. And more importantly, the sword, absolutely. We get, you know, the first bad guy turn up with his 
super deformed mecha which are called Meishin in in this world. And we should also mention that um, he names the clay model Ryujin Maru, doesn't he? He does. Um, uh, on his, on right. his way home and then this kind of, uh, this dragon spirit manifests itself and makes Ryujin Maru real. And then we, we get this kind of entry sequence, sort of mystically, Wataru enters um, Ryujin Maru to, to, to pilot it. Wataru then fights his first enemy, defeats him. We get our first special move, so to speak, mm-hmm. with his sword and, mm-hmm. you know, the first kind of standard final move sequence yeah, um, that we get, don't yeah. we? Um, the first of many. <laughs> the first of many, yes. There's also the added thing of this sort of bird character watching sort of from the shadows. Mysteriously. Um, mysteriously, indeed. <laughs> um, Wataru then, having done that, sets off on his quest and he gets on the rainbow and, you know, the mystical escalator and, you know, that's where it ends and, you know, he's, yeah, he sets off on the start of his of his adventure. Yeah, we sort of just see him kind of travelling to Mount Sokai mm. on, the, on the sort of rainbow, don't we? So what did you think of it as a as a first episode, Craig? Really good. Yeah, really good. I mean, like, my experience with SD Robo Shows is quite limited. I didn't really have any kind of point of reference, but I really enjoyed this first episode. I thought mm. it was excellent. You know, the way it sets everything up really neatly, the fact that it is so supernatural and mystical, I really enjoy. Yeah. Because uh, it is a bit of a breath of fresh air, you know, in, in amongst all the sort of uh, real robot stuff and um, super robot stuff. Yeah, and because it kind of has sort of elements of uh, the sort of super robot stuff, but it is a lot more mystical and supernatural mm. focused. I mean, the the entry sequence alone really just won us over. You know, when he enters Ryujin Maru, because he's kind of absorbed by him, goes inside of his body, and then you see him kind of travel through almost this kind of different dimension. He lands yeah, on top yeah. of the actual dragon sort of spirit and holds the horns. And he's mm. kind of controls everything from there, and that's kind of like the cockpit, but it's like in another world almost. Yeah, yeah. That's a very, that's a very cool and different way of doing things because uh, you kind of get the feeling that he's that bond with Region Maru. You know, he's he's kind of one with him, and he's in this kind of spiritual plane within him. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting that <clears throat> very different to the traditional kind of cockpit thing. And I agree. I think it's a very, very good um, first episode, and you know, it, it has you know that classic isekai kind of mm-hmm. feel to it um you know the way yeah. he gets sort of mysteriously kind of mm-hmm. swept off to an, another world yes it does um, remind us of you know a lot of the sort of classic ones like uh you know done by Escaflone or something you know yeah, it has that yeah. kind of real intrigue of what is this world mm. all about and you know all that kind of thing but it so neatly outlines the sort of concept and then you know we get this kind of mysterious scene with character will be introduced soon at the end just really well paced and sets everything up so nicely yeah, it is really, really well paced. Um, you know, it establishes Wataru, you know, who's, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's meant to be nine years old, as this kind of happy-go-lucky, typical... Ordinary kid. Just ordinary kid. Has these typical sort of school rivalries and, mm. and everything. You know, and he's quite um, a likeable kid as well. You know, he's mm. quite... He's, you know, <laughs> mega protagonists sometimes get a bad rep for being sort of moody or angsty, or if the Konagai <laughs> yeah. protag- protagonists are a bit full of themselves, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, you know, he's he, just likeable. He certainly he's isn't, no. And he doesn't really do anything to make you think that he's uh, a bit questionable as a character. You know, some of the some of the uh, Super Robot shows, you know, they, they grow quite a bit over the course of the series and you like them more. Um, and it's the same with a lot of real robot shows. But with this, he's just likable from episode one. Mm. You know, he's just a nice character. Yeah. And, and it's full of really neat detail as well. You know, in mm. the, the village elders, there's the the guy with the little clouds that float over his head. <laughs> you know, it's like really, it's really 
even this first episode, it's just little sort of nuanced detail like that. Yeah, you know, that's that's really really good. The concept about the rainbow losing colour, mm. the fact that the colour's been drained from the rainbow, that's quite a cool little concept. Yeah, yeah, it's all gone grey. Um, I think, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's why it's really effective. I think it's in, you know, in its twenty-one minutes of screen time, and mm-hmm. and the fact that the otherworldly bit is kind of only that second half of the first episode mm. kind of thing, really. You know, it establishes all that stuff really, really well. You know, the fact that Mount Sukai and Doakada, you know, have taken over, the the colours gone and all the difficulties. It gets that first fight in, you know, which clearly establishes mm-hmm. kind of what we're in for and certainly the style of, you know, the, the enemy yeah. um, mashing, which is the, the name they use for the mecha in this, this series, <laughs> that that bad guy with the big chin and sunglasses and stuff, yeah. you know. Because all and, of the uh, enemies in this series are quite wacky, you know. They they they've all got a lot of uh, issues as well, haven't they? They've all got quite a bit of trauma and things that they're, yeah. uh, you know, quite angry about. And you just know you're in for some great comedy, especially with some of the villains uh, yeah. from this first episode. You know, it's not going to take itself too seriously. No, no. And it's a little bit subversive with humor, which we'll get into a bit more as we. Yeah get on with the review you know i i I think it's a really solid first episode Mm. you know it's an eight out of ten i think this does plenty of you definitely want to see what happens Mm -hmm. once he's gone over that first bit of the rainbow yeah absolutely and that uh, little bit of an ending with um somebody watching them mysteriously is just yes (laughs) that that's had me hooked in one more yeah yeah definitely It, it sows those seeds really really well So now we'll get into our main review of the rest of the Wataru TV series and the series as a whole. Really, you know, the first thing to kind of talk about, I think, you know, is the kind of layout or the, the kind of structure of the series. Because mm. essentially it plays out like a role-playing game, mm. um, yeah. doesn't it? You know, Absolutely, it's... yeah. Because um, it, it is, you know, quite video game-like, you know, the seven mm. levels to Mount Sokai, each with their own kind of boss. Yes, <laughs> And and so, you know, you have these kind of henchmen that will pop up for a couple of episodes and generally be an antagonist. But then they have to fight a boss to progress and restore part of the colour to, um, to the mountain. Yeah, because essentially there's like a really kind of quite a fixed structure to each episode. Mm. Um, so each level is about four or five episodes long. Each level is kind of like an arc, isn't it? Like a story arc. It is like, it's essentially a... Absolutely, it's essentially a, a. Each one is kind of a mini story arc. I say four to five episodes long. You get a new, you know a new kind of theme to the level or the mm. world or the you know and a kind of look to the bosses. So each level starts off with there's some sort of MacGuffin that yeah. Wataru has to find. Absolutely, there's some sort of mystical object he needs to mystical progress. object. Yeah, and he has to find that. And once he's obtained it, he kind of. Because essentially each level is is taken over, so it was a you know it was a good world that's now gone bad because mm. of Doakada changing yeah. some people. You know he's made them bad. So mm. Wataru, through a series of clues, has to find you know whatever object it is, and once he's got it, he frees the level. Yeah, you know everyone returns to normal. You know whatever bad thing that has happened to the level is is Undone. reversed. And then you yeah. get a, a new colour appear in the rainbow. 
That's um, right, because we see we actually do see the uh, the sort of original kind of forms of the sort of villains. You see them turn mm, back to the normal selves. That's right, yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, certain things are undone. Like, for example, one of the levels is all polluted and that gets restored mm. to its former kind of glory nature-wise. So it's it does have that quite nice reward of seeing the kind of fruits of Wattery's labour at the end of each yes, yeah. each section, each story arc and level. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said, there is a kind of fairly fixed structure to the episode. You know, mm-hmm. Wattery will, he kind of talks to someone, they go and find something, solve some sort of problem, mm. fight someone at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. and then they either get the next clue to move on to the next episode, or at the end of the that arc, they fight the kind of main... Antagonist. antagonist of of that level or level and then, boss if you like <laughs> and it is literally the end of level boss isn't it yeah you it know, is very it's... much but i like the despite it having a very sort of um a structure that it always sticks to like a very sort of set and stone structure i like the fact that you know the problems that they face a lot of the sort of you know are quite puzzle like and so mm. you know things don't always turn out to be what they expect you know not it's it's like the whole thing of not everything is what it seems there's certain yes. times where he thinks he has to find one thing and it turns out to be something quite different something else. Sort of yeah. open to interpretation. You know, he needs to kind of, I suppose, <laughs> think outside the box a little bit. I know it's a bit of a sort of cliche at this point, but it is very much like how it works, isn't it? I yeah. mean, at one point, there's like a mirror that they need to find. It actually turns out to be the lake. Yes. You know, because yeah. it's like, he knows it's something reflective, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an actual physical yes. mirror. Because they get the mirror... The mirror breaks, and you know they're yeah. like, "Oh my god, we can't, we can't progress." You know, it's yeah. all's lost. But then it turns out that actually the mirror was just an actual mirror. <laughs> it was yes. the lake they needed, which has the sort of mystical powers that they need. So yeah, it's I like the way it it kind of subverts those expectations at times. Yeah, after the first two levels, and we got onto level three, it was a bit like at that point we're kind of like a dozen episodes into the series, mm. um, and I was kind of like, well. As much as I was enjoying it up to that mm-hmm. point, I was starting to think, oh, there's a bit, you know, there is a real formula here. Mm. You know, there is a real Absolutely. structure. And I was a bit like, mm, if it carries on like this, this could start to get a bit dull. Because um, mm. I know ultimately it's not aimed at 40-year-old men. It's yeah. aimed at... Like, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's aimed at sort of uh, pre-high school kids, ultimately. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, pre-secondary school or, you know, whatever your schooling system is. But what I did really like then is like for levels three and four, it gets split up a bit because mm. in, in level three, they have to go to level four to find something to solve level three yeah, before so it's going back like to find... <laughs> jumping ahead, it's almost like a cheat. <laughs> jumping ahead yeah, to another level and then it is, have to you know. <laughs> but that kind of mixed it up a little bit because they had it to did. kind of go between the two levels to, to mm. solve both levels. Yeah, you know, and that you got, was... That was not something I was expecting at all. No, because no, it had, I wasn't expecting it. had firmly settled into that kind of progression. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right. So, you know, that goes back to what I was saying about them subverting your expectations mm. at times. Uh, I really liked that as well, yeah. And, that, and I thought that was quite good, you know, because that, that whole thing about the um, fire sword and the permafrost sword, you know, mm. and this, this... And actually a really kind of this lovely kind of historical love story between um, yeah. Yasimu and Hanula and their statues and... And all the mm-hmm. rest of it, because there was there's a whole thing about balance, isn't there? You know, the, yes. I think the uh, fire sword is put where the ice sword should be, or vice versa, something like that. That's right. Yeah. So it kind of creates this like overbearing heat, yes, because things aren't balanced anymore. But it, as you say, it's also a love story about two kind of mythical kind of beings who are the guardians of the sword, and 
and it kind of feels a bit Greek mythology esque, doesn't it? You know, it does. Yeah. That, I mean, I'm not sure if Hanala and um, what's the name of the other god? Or yes, Dirty. Yes, I'm not sure if that is you know based on actual um, Japanese or Chinese mythology uh, tale, but it feels like it could be. It's that sort of you know sort of story, and it's it's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. And gives yeah. a nice kind of like richness to that arc that isn't mm. just find the MacGuffin, you know. Oh, I completely agree because I think as much as the the first two le- levels are uh, you know are quite interesting, and entertaining. I think absolutely they kind of really flesh out and really kind of add mm. a lot of texture to it. You know, definitely and a, and yeah. a bit you, more you depth, care more um, than it just being an object because it's linked mm. to two characters. And there's yeah. quite a sort of there is quite a sweet love story there. That's that's kind of you know. It's not kind of, you know, saccharine sweet, but it mm. and sort of, you know it's it's just well observed, I think. And it's that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, think, very know, much. In a live so. action movie, never mind in a cartoon named at kids, you know, it's like it's Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to get you to care about somebody else's romance, <laughs> really, isn't it? Already, it's it's a, it's a, it sounds like a harsh thing to say, but it is. And that is quite well written and quite observed. Well observed, yeah. I think. Definitely, and elevates it beyond the just normal fetch questy kind of story. Yeah, completely. And, and the other thing I quite liked as well, when we got to the end of the sixth level, mm-hmm. I was kind of like, nah, there's far too many episodes to go at this point mm. to get to level seven. Um, mm. And then it has this kind of interlude to these kind of gates of hell region, yeah. doesn't it? It has these four episodes where Wataru and, and Himiko ultimately have to go through. Because one thing we do, we kind of forgot to mention is that, so in the first episode, Wataru meets Himiko, um, mm-hmm. who, who accompanies him on the journey. And then in the second episode, we get um, uh, Shirabaku. Shirabaku, you know, who's this samurai sort of guy. Um, and then he joins him on this on, on the second level yeah he's kind um, of like a, a noble sort of swordsman type character he is isn't he he's a classic dual sword with samurai. a huge huge head yes. <laughs> just so happens to repeatedly get mistaken for a hippo by people because <laughs> <laughs> that i think that second episode actually um is quite interesting because he goes like wateru goes through those gates with the two dragons mm-hmm the bad guy from the end of the first episode kind of reappears mm-hmm. and it kind of sets that stage again you know adds a few more characters mm-hmm. and then really get into the story in earnest in kind of episode three mm-hmm. um but you know the fact that it kind of keeps doing that you know it does that bit with episodes three and four mm-hmm. and then you kind of have this interlude you know through the gates of hell because that i think was quite interesting because yes along the way himiko's dad kind of joins the the pack um and will kind of Come on yeah, to he joins else the party, doesn't he? Yeah, joins the party, and it, because it really is like an RPG. You know, I say, I even said joins the party kind of unconsciously. Yeah, it's it like an RPG sort of video game. Sort yeah, of it is. Yeah, I mean, it does the whole thing. It just plays out like an RPG. Mm. You know, and we've all certainly, or maybe even a fantasy novel, like you know, Tolkien, or, or even a fantasy novel. Yeah, yeah. Thing, you know, yeah, because you remember those books? I can't remember what they were called now, but I remember reading them at, at junior school where. They were fantasy books where at the end of you know you had a decision to make. It was oh, a non-linear yeah, they were, story. They were kind of like a choose your own adventure, but, yeah. but the they were a main narrative. But then it made you make a choice at the end. Yeah, yeah. And you, had I to, know and you would you jump mean. back and forwards between the book. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think if the adventure games, you know, and the RPGs that we used to play, um, you know, like the original Zelda with the, the little sprites, you know, not mm-hmm. the sprawling three D things that we get now, but you know, mm-hmm. the games that we used to get on the Mega Drive and Mega C D and Super Nintendo and stuff. It yeah. really, really, you know, I really kind of mm. and they were the kind of games that were being created back, back in nineteen eighty eight, you know. 
Um, you and know, as we probably... mentioned, of course, it went full circle because there was actually a Wario video game. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which I bet was uh, nice and easy for the designers. All right, okay, we've got seven different levels. These yes. Bosses, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like it's all it's all written out for them. Yeah, it's just, we've just got to write it, lads. We've just got to write it. Yeah, it's got to write it in program and it's done. Know, yeah, <laughs> Sunrise have done the work for us. <laughs> I really like the way it plays that out in, in mm. anime form. You know, it kind yeah. of, you know, as we said, it's not a bespoke, at that point, a bespoke video game adaptation, but it does adapt a video game kind of format mm. into an anime. Um, yeah. You know, kind of kind a of, video game and a sort of pen and paper RPG. Yeah. You know, yeah. sort of, uh, or, or fantasy novel-esque. There's all these different elements in it that kind of, you know, all yeah. associated with those genres and, and mediums. Yeah, I think it does that really well because the other thing that goes on, and you know, the the bird character we see um, in the first episode, Kurama, mm-hmm. as we said, like Himiko's uh, father, um, Hura, he joins later on, mm-hmm. um, and we see him as because every now and then this sort of mysterious Majin suddenly, you know, and it doesn't happen every episode, but no. you know, along the way, sporadically, this mm-hmm. mysterious. Majin comes in and sort of saves, saves the day. Yeah, he saves kind, the day, kind doesn't of he? gets them out of sticky situations, doesn't he? When they're in real yeah. peril. And so all along the way, there's this kind of background thing of other characters either helping or thwarting. Yeah, Wataru and Himiko and Chiramaku. So the thing is, I think some of it, I as an adult, you can kind of see. Oh yeah. A mile yeah. off, can't you? Um, Absolutely. Like I mean, that's just one of the flaws of not being its kind of target audience. Audience, yeah. I mean, because Kurama, um, the sort of bird character, you know, he's basically sent by uh, Duakadar and the Savage Brothers. Who are, mm. The Savage Brothers are kind of like the lieutenants of Duakadar, if you like. That's right, Kind of like yeah. the second in command. And they send him on this kind of uh, infiltration mission, don't they? Like, he's got to basically pretend to be mm. their friend and betray yeah. them. And kind yeah. of lead them towards danger. They take quite a while to cotton on, though, don't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, we've got to forgive these things because it's a kids' show. Because <laughs> there is that point. Because like Kurama, he always kind of disappears when mm. these things happen. And there's that point. I think you know, fifteen episodes in or whatever, where mm. you know, Wataru's kind of like, "Hang on a minute, where's Kurama?" You know, it kind yeah, of. Yeah, this is a bit weird. This is a bit weird, you know, and it kind of sinks in that this has happened again and Kuraman, you get that first inkling that they're kind of figuring out what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's it's kind of really, really effective because you you then get um, Tiger Prince and Dohara mm-hmm. um, join as well. And the, the Frey, so Tiger Prince is basically Doakada's son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Always betrayed as Doakada's son. Yeah, and I, actually, I don't want to go yeah. on and spoil the the ending mm-hmm. of this, um, mm-hmm. but he has quite an interesting story arc. And he does. Dohua, who is this? Uh, he almost it looks a bit like Dracula, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, <laughs> there is actually another uh, vampire enemy who is kind there of a Dracula is, yeah. parody. But yeah, he does. He has vampire fangs and a count-like kind of yes. costume, doesn't he? <laughs> and, like a sort of cape and a big collar and a giant head, like many of the uh, bad guys do. <laughs> But he is kind of like more of a father figure to mm. Tiger than yeah. Doakadar is. Yeah. Um, and that develops quite nicely as well into another sort of thing with the bad guys where you actually kind of care about those two characters. Mm. Yes. Which is which is interesting because, you know, there's... 
as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, things that as an adult you can predict. But that doesn't harm the show because they no. unfold rather well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that we know that Karama is not going to be a bad yeah. guy forever. You yeah. know, it, you get, there is actually a bit of a clue to that even um, that I'm sure kids would pick up on because of the fact that he mentions being cursed. Um, yes. And it's kind yeah. of like, Dragadar has sort of cursed him and forced him to be a kind of henchman. So it's kind of, he's kind of doing this against his will, really. Mm. Although the heroes don't really know that. And you know he's going to become a good guy. You know he's going to get yeah. on their side. Because yeah. he's not, his heart's not completely in it and he has a lot of conflict about whether to yeah, betray them. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. And at one point he gets kind of captured by the Savage Brothers and tortured and quite violently whipped. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another uh, example of the things that we talk about in this show about the gulf between what's acceptable yeah. on uh, kids' TV versus uh, what is over here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I think... You have that sort of in the first half. You have that bit between Wetteru and, and Kurama because um, Doakada has basically he's a, he was a person who Doakada has turned into a, a crow, basically yeah. kind of thing, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, and then that kind of ends, and then you get Tiger Prince really kind of takes over, and I think mm. the kind of friendship arcs and uh-huh. you know the sort of friends, unfriends, and development. And and how really, especially with mm-hmm. Wataru and Tiger Prince, mm-hmm. and the way their stories evolve, and, yeah, you know, evolve, and yeah. get and where they get to the end, and where you get to the like, you know, in episode forty four, where it kind of all gets revealed. Yeah, I think you know, I think he's really, really well done. I think it's it a really exceptional bit of character writing. So yeah, it, it gets really kind of dramatic and edgy. You see, towards the end, when there's this big reveal, because. You know, Tiger pops up as a rival to Wataru. You know, he, mm. he's interested in Himiko. Like, he kind of talks yes. about how he wants Himiko to be his bride. Yeah. Because he likes kind of strong sort of uh, women who have their own mind and stuff. And, you know, he's he's kind of he's kind of obsessed with her. So whenever he comes into the story, it's generally something to do with, like, Wataru being too familiar with her. Or there's, a, there's that episode with the uh, biker gang where the biker gang pisses him off. Yes, yeah. Because <laughs> the, the villain's kind of like a sort of hot rod and kind of... You know, kind of punk biker guy. And so he comes into the story, like, because initially he steals the sort of tiger mecha that he pilots, Tiger Maru, and he sort of just heads out on his own against Tahura's wishes. And, you know, he is just this kind of mischievous kid who keeps keeps on popping up in the story. Yeah. But the way his and Waru's friendship evolves is really interesting because, you know, they get to be real friends from being enemies, but then there's this big reveal where they actually both realise what they're fighting for. Yeah, yeah. Instantly, the friendship is just destroyed because they didn't realise that what the other one was trying to do. You know, he didn't realise yeah. that he was trying to defeat his father and he didn't realise yeah. he was Dugadar's son. Yeah. So instantly, there's this huge dramatic cleave put between the two of them. Yeah. And it's and really it, fascinating the way that it turns out and then becoming, going from being the best of friends to like the worst of enemies in the space of a few hours. <laughs> yeah, because that's quite interesting because there's that point where they're in that cavern and they're kind of helping each other, mm. you know, and they're right on that point where they've been kind of rivals and enemies and they kind of had this understanding and Tiger learns a bit, you know, about friendship and, you know, Wataru's his friend. And then, as you say, yeah. this realisation of what they're both after and then it like goes 180 degrees and, you know, they're, they're the kind of worst of rivals than, you know, it's even worse than it was before sort of thing. Absolutely, because that's the thing about it is, you know, their their conflict is very much 
because they kind of keep on getting in each other's way. It's not mm. really that they're enemies. It's just more like, you know, things, events kind of conspire to sort of pit them against each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's generally like some sort of hijinks they're kind of involved in more than anything serious. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, they go literally from being like, you know, sort of best mates to like worst of enemies, like <laughs> almost immediately. And it's and it does have that kind of whole sort of um, thing of, you know, Tiger's never known what a friendship is. So it is that yeah, kind of whole yeah. thing of, oh, like, this is what having a friend is like. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty uh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Oh, you try to kill my dad. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I found quite interesting as well is like, as a series like this, Doakada like barely features in it. He's mm. literally in truly only a handful of episodes right at the end. Yeah, because it's the final arc when he appears. Because mm. um, I think the, as Tiger and uh, Wataru are fighting quite fiercely, I think it might be in like episodes something like 43. It's a few mm. from the end anyway. Mm. Um, the demon castle that Duagadar inhabits kind of rises from the ground. Yes. Um, which another is another kind of video game you kind of touch of like yes, sort of final is, kind yeah. of level appears on the map sort of thing. And you know, he, he appears for the first time in that sort of subsequent episode, but it's only like the last couple of episodes that he sort of yeah. features in. The characters constantly refer to him. You see mm. a kind of shadowy sort of figure yeah, you, on you the kind, kind of, of castle. Yeah. You see kind of almost portraits of him and stuff, but you don't really see him as a character with dialogue until near the end. No, no. And you kind of, yeah, he's, I mean, he's constantly referred to. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you say, he's kind of pictures of him. And I think he appears on a screen at one point earlier on. But yeah. it's like, that's literally it. You, As you say, you don't see him until the fortress rises out the ground. Because mm-hmm. um, really, the, the you know, the antagonist is this plethora of bad guys yeah, that, that run really you know through all the previous sort of 42 odd episodes or so mm. you know and it's interesting how there's this kind of very distinct hierarchy from the villains you know like mm. the sort of the level kind of boss if you like orders the kind of lesser sort of yes couple of episode arc villains about yes because <laughs> it's typically about three isn't it because it's kind of you're right because it's kind of like the main boss of the level the, mm. in there and then there's typically like three or four kind of henchmen type guys you know and they're the ones that we see return to normal at, at mm. the end of the, the level when Wataru's completed whatever kind of mission um, that's right you know, yeah he's kind of got and some do, of them so. I mean some of them are better than others but there's quite a lot of kind of I would say there's quite a lot of like monster like sort of mecha you know there's like mm. wolves like we said there's a vampire themed one um, you know, there's like a sort of uh, there's like a Frankenstein's monster, yeah, um, and things like that. You know, they are very kind of universal monstery sort of themed. Yes, yeah, I mean, there is I'm that one level that which is, general. yeah, you're right because there is that one level which is basically like a, the universal monsters level, isn't it? And I think that's a good segue into talking about. There's so many nods to stuff mm. in this. Um, there's a lot of in jokes in this show, uh, both in terms of Japanese culture and Western culture as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a great gag where Himiko uses one of her ninjutsu techniques and basically turns into John the Swan from Gatchaman. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, and then things like that, because there's, um, there's an episode, I think it's like episode five or six, where, and this is the Toyo Ashida bit, you know, where Wataru basically fights like um, Kenshiro's, like his like thousand punch thing. Yeah, you know, and he does the whole. Da, 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 what? Yeah. you know, he, he literally <laughs> does it like that. Um, there's there's a boy that appears in like episode eleven or twelve who's basically Kiki from Kiki's Delivery Service. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like as you say the reference to Gatchaman. 
um, which is like quite clearly, you know, it's yeah. And there's loads and loads of little nods like that all the way through it. Um, mm. And you know, the detail we talked about, you know, that character with the little clouds above him when they uh, get to the, like the dirty level, I think level five. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the bad smoke or whatever the the main sort of baddies called him. He's got all black these little smoke, cla- is it, I think yeah. black or black smoke. Sorry, that's right. But he's got all these little black smoke, like you know, squirrely, squirrely little black clouds. Yeah, kind of it's like he's got this him. kind of like it's it's like something you'd see in the sort of you know like a kid's coming like the bean or something. Yeah, stink yeah. lines coming off. Of yeah, there. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it reeks of pollution. <laughs> and, you know, and it's those little details that are kind of. Are mm. really really good in it, you know, and, and all charming. these little nods. It, it just adds to that kind of real it does, charming yeah. sort of kids show it feel. Does. And you know, we're talking about the sort of humour and all the detail in that, and the fact that it does have a lot of references in it. We forgot to mention the little uh, "excuse me, men." The little I think yeah, I was, just, I was literally moles. just going to come on to that. Yeah, so all the way through, there's these. Um, I mean, what are they? They're like moles or something, I, aren't I they? I think they look like moles. I think I, I don't know if it's really ever explicitly explained, but... What they are, no. Yeah, so, but they're basically kind of like a sort of, you know, narrative tool for explaining things yes. in the show to kids. So it's kind of like, you know, they talk about the mythology of Mount Sokai and yeah. character special moves and all sorts of things and kind of function as a little kind of almost uh, info burst. <laughs> so there's these three little... I say I've written them down as moles, but I couldn't. Mm. I say I couldn't quite work out what they were supposed to be. But they either do this little explanation, or they do a scene change yeah, by pushing scene the scene across and saying, as you say, sort of screen wipe, screen wipe, and say, "Excuse me." Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about those because, like, sometimes they're quite funny, but sometimes yeah. the the screen wipe and the "Excuse me" is, I think, is massively overused. Mm, yeah, sometimes it can be used about five times in an episode, mm. and when it's a really good episode with really good pacing, it kind of breaks things up a bit too much. Mm. I completely agree with you saying it how it spoils the pace of the scene because because some episodes you might get you might see them literally once or twice. Mm. Yeah, but as you say, some episodes it's used five, six, seven times, and and it's just like, oh no, I'm kind of. It's breaking. It's, my it's really now. breaking it up a little bit. But the other thing that's quite interesting is that sometimes the characters notice mm. the moles. That you yeah. can see them looking at something, or they're looking around at something yeah. just after they've been on screen. That's right. It's like a fourth you know, wall breaking. It's like thing. a fourth wall thing, exactly. Yeah, which and I they refer it's... to things that are happening in the episodes, and kind of like, and sometimes in, in a, they can even get involved in the action as well. Yes. I mean, there's that episode with the little dinosaurs that breathe fire and the poor little mole guys are set on fire and they're rolling about yes, with the backside yeah. on fire. <laughs> I say, sometimes I, I, I find them overused, but as you say, this fourth wall breaking kind of inclusion mm. thing, I, yeah, I think it's really clever. It's another yeah. brilliant, neat little touch to very the Very ahead of its time, I would say, yeah, for 88. Very, very. I mean, you know, how many things these days do you, know, do you see with these kind of like self-referential humour and in-jokes and... Yeah, what people call meter these days, but it's like it does feel very much like it does different things to other shows. I mean, it's it's very interesting in that respect. I wasn't expecting that part of it at all. No, no, because it has a recap episode which comes like in episode thirty-seven, which mm-hmm. is very very late in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a very very unique take on a recap yeah. episode. Yeah, I like that because that is an episode that features a lot of those mm. uh, reader letter sort of segments. Yes. 
Because Kimiko uses all these ninjutsu techniques quite frequently, and she has one to escape literally any situation. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so it, it actually turns out that they had readers send them in. Yeah. And they use some of them in the show. Yeah. Which is really cool. I mean, imagine being a kid and sending it in and having your idea used in the show and then them crediting you for it. Yeah. That's awesome. I know. It's absolutely I I've never seen anything like that before and... or since. Well, I was quite blown away when I, I saw it because I thought, this is really cool. Yeah. You know, they've actually, and it, you know, it makes sense with the, the recap being, well, that episode being, yeah. you know, so far into the running time of the series. Because um, the little but, guys you know, thank, like, you know, the sort of viewers for sending all their ideas and stuff, don't they? And it's like, oh, keep them coming. Unfortunately, we can't show all of them, but we really appreciated all the staff really appreciated and that. And it's just a lovely little bridge between the audience yeah. and the creative staff. And the fact that they've done it and they've written them in and, you know, as you say, for Himiko's special moves. And I, I, I tried to research this, but I couldn't find anything on it. And anybody listening to this, if you know, but I wonder if at some point, you know, as it aired, they there was a, a request, you know, maybe in the advert break, advertisement break, you know, in the middle of the show or something, you know, or maybe running in a magazine or something that, you know, there was this thing, you know, right in with your... I think there must have been because it seems to not just be a coincidence that no, you know, no. like that people send in techniques for Himiko. It seems to have been a request because exactly. it is featured so and mentioned so many times, and and I think that there must have been some sort of uh, request yeah. for that. I mean, I wonder if um, Gango on Twitter might know because he knows a lot about the SD shows and he subbed some of them. Yeah, he subbed Granzord, and he's he's quite knowledgeable about some of these things. He he might know. But I've noticed that there's a trend recently in the fan-subbing community. There's a lot of VHS stuff popping up where you get the commercials and the promos and things mm, yeah. from the Japanese TV era. And so if there's something like that out there, it would be really fascinating to find that out. Um, you know, if to see what they actually asked for. Yeah, I agree. Because as you say, it's certainly not a coincidence. So there must have been some sort of promo campaign mm that they responded to in that episode, because it's, it's not a coincidence. It's obviously a very explicit thing. Um, yeah, the, the, it's obviously been something that's been planned, definitely. It feels that way to me. So, yeah, so that's quite a neat um, episode. Uh, the other thing as well I find in here, there's Wataru and Tiger have these balls. Wataru's produces Little Dan and Tiger's um, Evil Lion. And mm-hmm. for me, I, I can't get the fact that that is kind of some kind of prototype Pokemon. Yeah, because I mean, they throw the ball and then the animal appears, you know, and then mm. it fights, and it's just like I can't get when I see that I can't, can't get Pokemon out of my head. Mind. Well, that's the thing though. If you think about like Japanese culture and toys and stuff, the gacha phenomenon with the sort of little spheres with a toy with a cheap toy inside yeah. that you get out of a machine. I mean, yeah, and the whole kind of culture around little sort of action figures mm. and stuff like and collectible blind box figures and stuff. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if that's kind of come from something like that also as well, but you, you might be right. I mean, maybe there is something in there. The Pokemon came a little bit after that. I think it was a few, it was, it's like yeah, it was about mid nineties, wasn't it? it? Yeah. Or 97, mid, I think the, um, anime yeah, the game freak made so. that. So, but it, I mean, there could be any number of influences on Pokemon for the, for the whole kind of gacha thing, but yeah, that is an interesting point, though. And you can't, you can't kind of not think of it because Pokemon is so ingrained in, yeah, in sort of culture now. Yeah, and it is like of... you say the thing that they're throwing a sphere and a monster appears is just, yeah, yeah and, and, and it, you know, it may not be linked at all, you know, but and it, and as you say, you know, the whole uh, 
gashapon and thing and you know the collectibles thing uh that you know that's kind of sort of ingrained in collectibles and otaku culture and well even not even just otaku culture it's kind of just kind of kids toys type thing yeah, isn't I mean, it's, it it's um, totally a western thing now i mean completely. um but you know as soon as i saw that i i just instantly thought pokemon <laughs> yeah um, that is the thing so. though it is it is very much um you know you once you you've kind of exposed to something you can't kind of necessarily separate the two in your mind so like the end of the series i was kind of Again, I don't want to kind of give too much away, but I was expecting it to end in a certain way. And I think, mm. you know, with level seven kind of getting wrapped up in 44 and Wataro returning home, mm-hmm. I kind of expected episode 45 to play out a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm perfectly honest, I found it a little bit of a disappointing final episode because I, know what I, you mean. I thought, you know, with what happened in the first episode with Shun mm-hmm. and Yumi, I thought it was going to close the loop. Yes. I thought exactly the same. I thought it was going to be a nice bookend where things yeah. came full circle. And we got an episode which was kind of about Wataru returning home and everything being normal. And yeah. him kind of settling back into his own life. Yeah. And because the, the credits of the previous episode closed with him sort of skating home. Yeah. And they could have actually ended it there. But I, I thought, all right, so there's one more episode. So we're going to see him go home and be a normal kid again, just like the beginning. Yeah. And it would have went full circle and bookended nicely, like you say, you know? Yeah, because I was kind of hoping, you know, you'd see Wachu having been on his adventure, how he would then go back to Shun and back yeah. into that classroom environment. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it was just another recap episode. Mm, it was, because Himiko uh, kind of delivers this sort of... There's like this tape turns up. And yeah. It's kind of like a mystical tape that's kind of like a portal to Mount Sokai. And yeah. Himiko pops out of the screen and then he's kind of talking about what they've been up to since. And you do get a little bit of, um, you know, kind of what the characters have been doing. Mm. But it just, I don't know, it just, it's mainly kind of clips and stuff. Like, it, I wanted to kind of see Wataru, like you say, maybe getting one over on Shun. Yeah. Or maybe even becoming friends with him in the rivalry yeah, not being important yeah. anymore. And him seeing his mum and, you know, like, just kind of them hanging out and him, like, being grateful to be a normal kid again. Yeah. But still being some sort of little reminder of Mount Sokai. Maybe a bit like the end of the movie Labyrinth. You know, there being mm. something that kind of shows you that that wasn't just all in the character's mind, it was real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly real, but it's it's just, it doesn't have that bookend that I was kind of hoping for. No, no. And I think, you know, essentially it is a very, very, very good series. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, it's got some really standout episodes. I think episodes mm-hmm. 33, 36 and 42. Mm-hmm were really, really, like, exceptionally good episodes. Mm. And 36, which is the last episode of the, the kind of Hellgate arc, um, you know, it was really particularly dark. Yeah, it is. Um, and I wanted to talk yeah. about that earlier, actually, because, like, you know, that whole arc, um, you know, <laughs> Shirobaku and uh, Miko's dad are sort of stuck in this giant clock. And the hands are like blades which are going to decapitate Yes, them. yeah. If Wataru doesn't solve the sort of challenges in time. Yeah. That's pretty grim right there. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was quite taken aback when like they started that, you know, and, and Himiko's dad... Because stuck for about four episodes. <laughs> yeah. And, the, you know, these hands start at 12 o'clock and then they go either side of the, of the clock face to the point where they're about, you know, and they're literally kind of... Pressing on, on their uh, necks by the end. Shirobaku's and, and Hero's neck, you know. And, yeah, and they're kind and, of and, and it's quite, 
<laughs> it's quite a dark arc, you know, and that and but episode the final one, episode thirty six, the final one of that arc is particularly dark. Yeah, it um, is because there's like there's an episode where Waru gets turned evil. Yeah, and he that's literally right, yeah. does not give a crap about his yeah. uh, friends being decapitated. He's quite fine with it. <laughs> and it does all that really, really well. And it, you know, you have this kind of good final battle and like the resolution of the characters and the, the dragons and stuff. Um, but then you just get that final episode, and I just think it's it's a it's bit just ends on a bit of, of a whimper. Yeah, you know, I wonder. Just... I have to sort of wonder if there was maybe some sort of production um, issue to just get it out and done, and they didn't have much of a chance to develop much story for it. Yeah, it, now... it just sort of issues the natural path of going full circle back to the first episode again. Yeah, yeah, it does because because interestingly, like. Granzort started airing a month after this finished, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah, so Iuchi was working on Granzort when this, mm. you know, the so final episode of this. obviously the planet stages for that one. And, you know, and you're right, it's because, you know, the man was really busy from, mm. <laughs> you know, from when Wataru <laughs> started to when Cho, Absolutely, yeah. Cho Meishin, Iudu, Wataru finished um, in 98 or whenever it was. He, I say he was flat out either doing Wataru or Granzort. Mm. and Yamato Takaru. So, you know, I do wonder, you know, there was a bit of a crunch and it and it just didn't quite get wrapped up because clearly they were going to do that episode with wrapping up the series and, you know, mm. the, the main battle with Doakada in episode 44. So, yeah, I yeah, mm. for me, that's the only kind of miss, I think, in the, yeah, I in the series. It's, it is a bit of a shame that it fell down the final hurdle, though. That That's it's so frustrating that it was the very last episode, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes the structure of something can be, you know, kind of just sort of, you know, it's it's not been knocked off course totally because, you know, we did still get a proper ending to it. But it's, yeah, yeah. as an epilogue to the series, it could have mm. been a little bit stronger. But um, yeah. I did want to mention also that Mapo, the uh, sort of villain of that really dark arc, the sort of crone yes. demonic woman is really creepy. Yes. <laughs> she does yeah, seem she like is really, really creepy. Like a Japanese yeah, ceremony. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she is uh, ex- exceptionally uh, creepy. <laughs> you know, I think just kind of to wrap up our review of the you know the, the main structure and context of the series. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's very very good. Um, I think it does a lot of things very very well. It does. I mean, considering it holds your attention as an as mm. an adult when it's clearly aimed at kids. And I mean, we've talked about the fact that a lot of shows were kind of aimed at the family, which have quite yeah. dark things in them. But this is squarely. Like you know, aimed at at children in a way that we other shows that we've watched haven't been, and as a result, I think it you know the fact that it holds our sort of attention really well and you know is good throughout is is yeah. an achievement really, especially you know watching this with much older cynical eyes. It's just a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's got such a good reputation, you know, and mm. I think people have someone replied to a announcement tweet on this said, you know, it's their favourite show. You know, it, it is very, very good, and I this held my attention much mm. more than I was expecting it to. Yeah, you know, I must much, admit, much I was more. I was a little bit kind of concerned. I was thinking, oh, is this going to be something that you know is going to be fun and novel in the beginning, but it gets a bit yeah, tiresome as yeah. it wears on. But they always had some sort of trick up the sleeve to yeah, make it a they did. bit more interesting. And it's just funny in places as well. I mean, Yeah, oh, really it is proper laugh out loud funny in places as well. I mean, yeah. uh, one of the things that stands out to me was uh, there's this scene where one of the um, villains who's previously been ridiculed because of his weight, 
he kind of forces the sort of uh, yeah he forces the villagers to kind of overeat and become fat. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this quite chilling music sort of kicks in where Wataru like sort of dares to ask the question why was he fattening them up, and it kind of implies that it's going to be to do with cannibalism and he's going to eat yeah. them. But he's like, oh, just so he could give them grief. Yeah. <laughs> just we could insult them like he yeah. like he did. And the music sort of goes back to normal. It's just really great observed gags like that. There's some really funny yeah. ones. And I think that's the, the thing about this show, and there's there's almost too much to talk about mm. in Wataru. Yeah. There, there literally is too much to talk about. Which you know, you'll have if, gotten the gist of from our review, because we have had to go backwards and forwards and then oh yeah. and this and another thing. <laughs> Doing a yeah, I mean, it is know? it is incredibly rich <laughs> in texture and characters and details and uh, and and little ve- events and all, and even uh, and it surprised me because it's got such a kind of fixed structure mm. and yet it does so much at the same mm. time and there's so much going on in it uh, yeah i mean i think it's really a brilliantly executed um series really it really is yeah i mean it's it's a credit to sunrise that they can make mm. such a different type of show i mean you know you look at something like gundam which you know is or, you know, any of the other sort of mecha shows that they made, you know, the likes of sort of, you know, mm. Dragon R or Elgaim or whatever. You know, they're, they're all quite, you know, they've, they've all got similarities and differences and they're all mm. good in their own ways. But, you know, they can be enjoyed by a younger audience, an older audience, an audience in between. The fact that these are aimed squarely at kids, but we can still enjoy them as an adult is just a yeah, yeah. marvellous thing. And they don't lose any of their kind of appeal or what they're trying no. to do. No, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is why I wanted to really cover Wataru on it because it's such a different take on, like, the mecha genre. And like you say, mm-hmm. if, if you look at Sunrise's output, you know, the real robot boom with, you know, as you say, Gundam, you know, all of Takahashi's show, all of mm-hmm. Takayuki Kanda's show, Tamino's shows. Yeah. You know, I mean, think, you th- if you think of something like Takahashi's shows, you know, the likes of, like, sort of forms and things like that, and you... You compare it to this, they couldn't be more different. No, no. <laughs> I know. But, but you equally know. as good in their own way, you know. Uh, uh, absolutely, yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. You know, it's and that's kind of where you know there is that kind of richness to the to the genre, you know, to the mecha genre. Really, there's all these. You know, it's applied in so many different ways. Hmm. Yeah. Completely. Right. So um, we'll end the, that kind of review there, and we'll kind of dig into some of the other aspects sure. of. Uh, Right, so now we'll kind of have a deeper look at the the characters and sort of production and uh, mecha and design and, and that sort of stuff. So we'll start off with our our hero Wataru. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we it's said in the main series review, he's this plucky, sort of happy-go-lucky, everyday nine-year-old with his own sort of challenges at school. You know, mm-hmm. got his mum on him for being late. Yeah, you know, waking up and <laughs> and all the rest of it. I do like his arc because he he does have a really really interesting arc. There's some real messages that are in this, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's some realistic stuff, isn't it? It's mm. a kids show at the end of the day, so there's all this stuff. Um, and I think at the start he's, he's brash, but a, maybe a little bit unsure of himself. That's and, right. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I think he's he's definitely like you know not the most confident kid possibly. No. Um, maybe he's got a few little vulnerabilities in him, but he's but he's good natured and he's you know. He's quite, you know, he's nice to people and he, he generally wants to be liked, doesn't he? Which I think is why yeah. Shun is such a kind of thorn in his side. Yes, yeah. 
Absolutely, because I think you know, as as he goes through the levels and the stuff that they overcome, you you know, you see him, you see him develop, you know, you see him become stronger, more confident. Mm. He takes charge as a person. He does absolutely. Yeah, you're he right. He goes takes as a charge. He takes charge um, a little bit in certain situations where, because Shirabaki kind of is a bit of a mentor figure to him. Yeah. In the beginning, but you know, he, as he kind of grows, he seems to kind of like need his guidance less. Yeah. Sometimes it's sometimes it's Shirabaki or Himiko or somebody that hoists them out of the uh, dirt at the right time. But then as Wario's grown, you know, he, he'll figure out the puzzles and you know figure things out for himself and or make a decision to do something. Yeah, for the core group. Um, and there's there's you know there's certain um, episodes as well where it's quite clear that it's like you know you've got to overcome, you know you've got to keep going. You know it's like you you mustn't give up. Yeah. You, you know there's these there's a few episodes certainly maybe in the sort of last third of the series where he's grown as a person and he he kind of meets this insurmountable challenge. Mm. But he overcomes it, you know, either through the, you know, the hundredth or thousandth deity and this, you know, uh, I think her name's Yuki, that, that girl that he meets in the ice um, level, level four or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, these things. And it's like, you've got to carry on. And, it, you know, there's quite a clear message in his development. Oh, yeah. And in the person he grows to, it's like, don't give up, kids. You mm-hmm. know, things may seem tough, but, you, you know, if you crack on and mm-hmm. stick at it and give it all you've got, you can overcome it. You know, there's yeah. a very clear message in that. Oh, absolutely. In in his development, which I, you know, I, I quite like. And I think it actually works, his character development. Mm, it does. And Ryujin Maru almost serves as a kind of... Yes. Almost kind of like an inner voice or sort of conscience. You know, mm. he tells him, Wow, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You know, you've you've got to overcome this don't think that way or do this or that. And he, he kind yeah. of sums up what the audience is thinking. He kind of spurs things on and spurs Wattery on to, to not give up and do his best. Yeah, exactly. And you're absolutely right because uh, Ryuji Maru is kind of almost like this fatherly mm. kind of figure to him, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is, yeah. In, in, you know, in this mysterious world that he's suddenly found himself in. I suppose he's just kind of anchor, isn't he, to everything. I mean, like yeah. he kind of knows everything that's going on. Probably more so than the little exposition he excuse me mole guys, you know. Yeah. He kind of anchors him and tells him what's happening and what he needs to do and quite often he tells him about this mystical MacGuffin that they need and that sort of thing. They do have quite a close relationship because um, without giving too much away there are scenes where uh, you know, Wattery's kind of put through the emotional ringer where something mm. bad happens to Ryuji and Maru. You know, there's, there yeah. is a real kind of father-son thing between them, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think as we talked about in in the main series review, you know, with Tiger Prince, you know, and that enemies that come together, become friends, become mortal enemies, but then kind of become friends again, you know, that thing, what it means to be friends, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how it kind of adds that depth to his character and, mm-hmm. and everything um, and his whole development, I think, you know, is really, really good. At the same time, Rataru doesn't change. Rataru is still kind of the brash, plucky, happy, good-natured kid. Plucky, good-natured kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said at the first episode review, you know, he's a character which remains likable. Mm. Um, from the beginning to the end, yeah. From the beginning to the end, absolutely. I think he's a great little kind of mascot character for, for other nine-year-old kids. Mm. He's kind of like a um, role model, I guess. Yes. And I, and I think I almost feel that he's very much part of the aim of the series mm. I, you know I, as a you know middle-aged man looking back at something like this mm. i can't help but you know mm. get that it was especially know, as was, a dad yourself you know 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. A lot of a lot of the mecha shows were kind of you know sponsored by toy companies and were there to drive toy sales, which mm. this this was to an extent, but mm-hmm. there was definitely much more of a moral kind public of... service moralistic mm. thing to to it, um, and especially the way Wataru I think was written and and you know the arcs mm-hmm. and the development he goes through. Yeah, um, absolutely. No, I to- I totally agree with that. I think they were trying to instill it with some moral. Mm. Well, instill it with like a moral, give the character a moral compass, if you like. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's the thing is going back to one second for Region Maru. He's kind of probably the only Majin that is actually a character. Yeah. Because all the other ones, you know, might have dialogue or speak, but they're kind of sort of all, you know, they they don't seem to have like sentience, whereas no. Region Maru does. And yeah. I guess that is because one of the dragon gods is literally inside of him. He's literally inside it, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's obvious why. But it's interesting yeah. how he's the only one who is a character from a sort of writing point of view. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Shibaraku, and almost, I'll say this about Himiko as well. You know, they're almost uh, comic relief mm. yeah. elements to it as well. But, absolutely, um, yeah. They're kind of like the, yeah. the sort of wacky kind of travelling companions comic relief yeah. Characters, yeah. Actually, I find it hard to not talk about both of them together. Mm. Uh, yeah. If I'm honest, Craig. Because they are um, very much the sort of supporting characters. The, of... the, the main supporting characters, aren't they? You know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Shibaraku as the samurai, and then Himiko as the ninja. Despite being a kind of samurai, you know, he's he's a very goofy character. You know, he's like. Yeah. He's always kind of complaining about people calling him a hippo. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, he, he sort of comes off as like you know he's always talking about honor and. But he's actually kind of goofy in himself, you know. He's, he doesn't yeah. always necessarily follow those ideals, and he kind of loses his head over a pretty woman as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and as I was going to say, because there's almost these these little bits of almost cowardice. Mm. Yes, this is super racket, He talks about know, honor he, and bravery and that, but you know, he's he's crying manically when he's in really bad danger of getting. Yeah, killed. you know, he'll hide under a rock um, pretty quickly and and leave, you know. Wataru and, and Himiko to it sort of thing. Yeah. Um, like you say, you know, he loses it and, you know, will swoon over a pretty girl and, and, and like very quickly. And, and there's some bits with that, you know, where he, he kind of gets his love interest and it never quite work out. Because mm. um, that's one of the things I wanted to say about Wataru actually um, that I missed, you know, he's a typical little boy. Like there's little bits with girls in there mm. where he kind of sees girls half naked or... Because <laughs> um, there's a bit where... Um, where it's that uh, girl that he meets in level four, mm-hmm. you know, and they're on top of the mammoth, mm-hmm. and um, he grabs her. Yeah, he grabs her breasts, breaks, but she says, "Hold on to him," and he like, and he, he does that, and then he's like, "Oh, doesn't know where to put his yeah, hands." Yeah, you know, and he, you see him blushing, you know, <laughs> that interesting girls, blossoming you know, and those, kind of thing, yeah. and that sort of fumbling, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, wants to sneak a peek, and and that's kind of really. But it's done I, in a much more endearing, endearing way than in a lot of shows. Yes. He is just learning that he's attracted yeah. to girls and it's not really done in a particularly no, questionable and, and, and way. That's, yeah, exactly. And I, I think endearing is the word I would use for mm. it as well. It's not in a really pervy, no. leery kind of mm. male gaze type way, It's just way, not that it? sort it's, of show, there's, is it, there's, really? There's, no, there's a, there's a level of innocence to it, which is Which is just nice. as well, considering we've talked about its target audience quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But, um, one thing I wanted to say about um, Shirabaku is I love the method of summoning his Majin. Yeah, is, yeah really I wanted to funny, talk about that as well. He has a yeah. really funny method of summoning his Majin. He basically 
has a phone card with Zanjin Maru's his mecha on it, yeah. and he goes and puts it in. In a he has to find a call box, yes. and there's quite a lot of comedy regarding the fact he needs to find a call box on what level he's on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's one episode where he can't find one, which is a big hassle. <laughs> but again that goes back to the sort of in jokes and the meter sort of aspect mm. of the show is that phone cards were a popular anime merchandising item mm. in japan yes, in the 80s exactly yeah and you know you could get a phone card with just about any character on you can think of mm. you know whether it was lum or amaru Ray or whoever you know you think, yeah, yeah. think of a character he's been on a he or she's been on a phone card at some point yeah so the yeah. fact he has to go and call him to summon him to summon him quote quote unquote in inverted commas is hilarious yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of ties back with what we were saying about the fact that, you know, that uh, Ryujin Maru is the only sort of character yes. mecha that's yeah. kind of, you know, given proper... Because he has conversations with them on the phone, but you often don't hear what's being said. No, that's right, yeah. <laughs> like you hear I don't think that's a brilliant part. little... A brilliant little touch because, like yeah. I say, he gets in a proper flap sometimes when he's like, and he's just like, um, I've just got, I know you're just about to start a battle, but I just need to, yeah, to run off and find the phone box. Because at the beginning, yeah. he seems to kind of keep it from Wario. It's almost like he's a bit embarrassed because <laughs> yes, he's yeah. like, I just need to come back. I'll be back with my. We imagine, but just give us a second. <laughs> that is a great uh, source of comedy, and I really laughed hard the first time I saw yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, some. <laughs> there's some brilliant little touches with that and the same with Himiko because mm. again as you as you previously said she's literally got a device or a get out card because she she's uses all a... this like ninjutsu and mm. ninja magic mm-hmm. and she changes you know she turns into animals she shrinks she stretches yeah you know <laughs> she has a hammer impervious. that can make grow in size at one point which is a, yeah a interesting plot device for this episode where things are large and small yeah oh yes that bit where they get aboard the uh the mothership sort of yeah and they have to in, sort of make region maru yeah. like a larger size at one point leading to another great gag where um Wairu can't summon him because he's too small <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> but yeah she has a technique she has like a ninjutsu technique for every single situation she's she's completely invincible you know where yeah, other she's people impervious are... to anything that's thrown at her <laughs> apart from like this one flower which knocks her out cold yeah um but you know everyone else is either hot you know they're this they can't stand on the ground or you know whatever's happening to them the smoke you know yeah, doing the pollution that, kind of, that um, pollution, polluted arc we talked pollution. about with the evil factory and stuff she yeah, just never you know, gets she never gets phased by anything and she's kind of like no. really childlike and happy-go-lucky to a point yeah. where she's kind of oblivious to most things yeah. and possibly even nearly slightly insane <laughs> And she is like, yeah, exactly, because she is completely bonkers. Because she always refers to Shibaraku as um, uncle, you know, as like a hippo or uncle. Yeah, you know, she even calls her dad uncle. Yeah, uh, you know, which which you know, I, I've watched enough anime to understand that it's almost like a bit of a sometimes endearing, but sometimes kind of a bit. insulting yeah. term, you know, to yeah. refer to someone who's older as just as uncle. But she is um, so oblivious to certain things, you wonder yeah, if she doesn't realise that it's slightly derogatory or whether it is a term of endearment. I'm sure yeah. somebody who speaks Japanese will know more about how it's used, but it is interesting the way, she, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of used in the series. Because there's times when, you know, characters are like pretty much near death and she just doesn't seem to understand since she's no, so invincible no. and happy go looking yeah. and slightly mental. <laughs> And she's like bouncing around and like, I mean, I feel with um, Himiko's character, there's, as a non-Japanese 
mm-hmm. speaker, mm-hmm. there's there's a whole raft of stuff. Oh yes, that I've missed. I think there's going to be with, absolutely with loads of word puns and gags in there. Yeah, and plays on words and stuff. Even just judge. I mean, the subtitles for the show we that we watched it with weren't the best, but even they seemed to convey that there was a lot of stuff going on with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, she is just a completely like indescribable character, really. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> makes our job very hard because <laughs> she's almost in some ways you could almost say she's a bit of a she's almost a bit of an unintentional bully mm. do you know what I mean some of her behaviours yeah. and the way she treats other characters and mm. stuff uh, This the way the, what she calls them you know the way she treats people and constantly um, the heroes are just exasperated by her behaviour exasperated like, by her Oh my god! Like you know, she's, there's times when they say she's completely insane. There's times when she's like, "How? How is she even still alive?" You know, like because <laughs> there's that level where there's that female um, character, female sort of henchman, mm-hmm. where she befriends and then yeah, you know, she ends up in a palace or whatever. Mm-hmm. And later on, like Rattru turn up and she goes, "Hang on, how are you friends?" With her, she's you the know. bad guy. What's going on? She's the bad guy. Oh yeah, she's like, oh, I don't know, I don't care. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, know, she's like, like, yeah, she's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, she's proper bonkers. And there's like, there are like lots of like again, loads of genuine laugh out loud yeah. moments with with Himiko. Yeah, um, definitely. In another yeah, series, I, she might be quite irritating, but um, I think that maybe there's a few points where she, she grates a little bit, mm. but I think that for the most part, she is quite likeable. And yeah. in another series, she might have just been a massive annoyance, but it's just the kind of level of playful humour and the function she sort of serves in the story in that she is just quite likeable. Yeah, and I think as the main sort of triumvirate of characters, you mm. know, Wataro, Shibaraku and, and Himiko, mm-hmm. I think with their various foils and strengths and character personalities. I think they work as a really good, you know, as that yeah. main trio of characters through the series. Which I think kind of brings us neatly onto Karama as well, the sort of yeah. uh, Birdman, because she absolutely loves him. She totally yeah. loves him to bits. But <laughs> what's humorous is she quite often refers to the fact that, you know, she really loves the fact that he's a bird. And when he actually turns turns back to his human form, because obviously that was going to happen <laughs> yeah. at some point, I'm not sure that's really yeah. a spoiler. Um, she's actually kind no, of disappointed. Tele- <laughs> she wants yeah. his bird face back. Because <laughs> she, she says, and she goes, I think I preferred you as a bird man. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, thanks very much. Charmed, I'm sure. You know. And that goes back to what you were saying about it, kind of, you know, not necessarily always acting, whether it's it's not really through malice, it's just the fact she's a bit kind of... Oblivious. A bit oblivious that she sometimes yeah. kind of treats people a bit sort of shoddily. <laughs> Yeah, and, and as you say, moving on to nearly on to Kurama, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's he obviously because of you know what Doaka does done to him, and mm-hmm. you know he's got to embed, you know, sort of embed and infiltrate the group and bump off Wataru. But mm-hmm. you know, he has this constant. He is a duplicitous character, mm-hmm. but that inner turmoil he has. Yeah, he has a real really wanting to hurt. He? he does, he does, you know, and I think the way he's that, not a bad guy. Again, he's just being forced at the situation. No, exactly. And the way they show that inner turmoil, mm. um, you know, and those points where he's he's about to do harm to Wataru and, you know, um, and then he's just like, oh, I can't do it. You know, yeah. I can't. I can't kill I a can't, kid. <laughs> I can't kill a kid. I can't go through with it. You know, and again, and going back to the it. dark things, you know, it can be quite dark in place in that sort of regard. Shibaraku, at one point, after he discovers his duplicitous nature, is actually going to kill him. 
Yeah, yeah. At one point, until he, he he has a sort of crisis, and he's like, "No, I can't. He's not. He's not a bad person." And and he kind yeah. of forgives him. And there's this turning point that's really interesting for the character. But Kramer is quite a good character. You know, he's quite he's quite an intriguing character. And he and you know, yeah. he, he after becoming human, he kind of goes off in his own sort of journey. Mm. And you know, at that point, as you mentioned earlier, Tiger kind of takes more center stage as a sort of potentially sort of good villain. <laughs> yeah. But he That's comes kind of the main foil the to Ataru, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. he comes back towards the end to help out in the final battle mm. because it would have been a bit disappointing if he didn't, really. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. You knew you weren't going to see the end of him when yeah. he did kind of... when his main arc had finished and he mm. kind of went off on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get into Tiger Prince and mm. Dohara, um, you know, as a, as a pair of characters. And, and, and I think they're quite... They're quite interesting because they're like fundamentally evil and especially Dohura who yeah. he's kind of dotting on Tiger Prince and kind mm. of you know Tiger Prince will disappear and he's like oh where's this where's he gone kid now gone, you he, know, he's yeah. always trying to get him to study isn't he he's, he's supposed yes, to be yeah. studying but he's snu- he snuck out in the mega Tigermaru yeah because <laughs> although although I'm assuming it's supposed to be his he's not supposed to take it out because he kind of does effectively sort of steal it when we first see yeah, it yeah yeah and and uh Dohiro's kind of like, you know, got his head in his hands like, oh god, this yeah. kid, what am I going to do with him? <laughs> Even towards the end, you know, Doehua gets particularly evil, you know, when we're kind mm. of getting into the, towards the back of that Hellgate arc and into the, the main battle with um, Doakada, you know, he gets particularly evil, but even then he has a kind of change of conscience and, you know, mm. and when the likes of, you know, Wataru and, and, and others help him and save him, because at one point, you know, it you know, he looks like he's he's dead, but you know that he gets revived. You know, they they help each other, and there's this. Yeah, I think there's this quite again. It comes back to this kind of moral of the story type mm. thing, you know. And it's like even bad people can be good, and yeah. you shouldn't just even though he's your enemy. If he's if he needs help, you should help your, Absolutely, your enemy. Sort yeah, of thing. that you makes know, my, that is another sort of thing about why his character is he's so moral and kind of. You know, he doesn't yeah. want to see anyone die. That he's kind of you know willing to help even yeah. a bad guy. And it's it is interesting though, as 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 you kind of mentioned, because he sort of serves his master, which is kind of like his job. Yeah. But not at the cost of uh, not looking after um, Tiger. You know, Tiger is like a son to him. Yeah. So yeah. it is a case of like, mm. you know, he's going to put Tiger before his master, and ultimately, he kind of yeah, you, as you probably expect, he kind of does towards the end so we, we we do get a really interesting dynamic between those two characters absolutely yeah yeah definitely you know the other one main ones to talk about are probably the savage brothers mm. you know this this trio of brothers that are doakada's main henchmen mm-hmm. they you know <laughs> they can be actually quite nasty at times mm. and there's no redeeming arc for them <laughs> No, they are you know, just they like, are they nasty. are the the bad guys. Really, yeah, and I they? mean, as as I mentioned, they torture Karama at one point yeah. for failing because they realise that his heart's not in it and he's not going to kill Wataru, and so um, they have to rescue uh, Karama at one point. But you know, they're just brutally kind of whipping him, like just whipping him into next week. You know, like <laughs> and it and you know the the bully are the bosses of the the levels and you, you better yeah, you better yeah. get results or you know you're going to be on the chopping block and there's a lot of infighting between them and stuff interestingly when yeah. they're introduced it's the first time you see mecha combinations we'll get to the mecha in a little while yeah yeah and i think you know they um yeah I, I, you know because i think they're like, cruelty brutal and mm. i can't remember what the third one's called but you know they are they're really yeah uh, they're aptly named <laughs> <laughs> they're really aptly named, yeah. You know, and I think they're a great, and I, you know, I like the fact that you know, whereas the others, 
antagonists, you know, go through various redemption arcs mm-hmm. and, you know, elements to their story. They don't. They're just, <laughs> they're just really, really nasty bad guys. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I like that because it does actually keep that constant, even though it's a kid's show, it does keep that kind of real threat mm. or element of threat throughout the series, Definitely. really. And the fact you that Duracadar isn't seen but looms kind of tall over mm. there, over yes. the kind of proceedings of everyone's scared of him, you know. Yeah. The, you know, all the, this hierarchy of henchmen are always sort of threatening what will happen to you, if, you know, if the boss finds out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, in other terms of characters, there's about... 50 or 60 other characters we could talk about which absolutely because you know, you know we just don't really have time to go into but you know, you, know. You, you get a lot of these kind of couple of episode arc villains and even after defeat they sometimes pop back up sometimes with a new mecha um and sometimes like with a repaired one or an upgraded one you know yeah with some of your favorites you will get to see a few times so it's kind of nice that some of your favorites stick around a bit and and i'll finish that off by saying that i think there aren't really any bad characters in this no i agree with that i think you know i think they're they're all good fun and entertaining Mm. for for whatever reason yeah Um, i totally agree with that yeah we'll move then swiftly into the mecha and you know as we've said this is very much of the super deformed element so you know there's some really neat designs ryujin maru Clearly is is influenced by Dragonard D1, which mm. was airing at the same time. If you, you see Dragonard's sort of basic style, it, I mean, I always remember that sort of very early on when I saw it. I was thinking, oh, that looks like a, you know, super deformed Dragonard sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, you get into <clears throat> lots of other sort of unique, as we said, there's ones that are Universal's monsters. Mm. There's you know, the sort of pollution-based ones and there's kind of like... Yeah. So Heroes uh, is kind of like a sort of demonic kind of one. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's a great there's a great episode where there's a villain who um, is kind of like a sort of rocker who basically like uses yes. his guitar yeah. to like summon the spirits of previously fallen Majin. Yeah. And uh, he kind of brings back a lot of the kind of greatest hits of the most fearsome ones as ghosts. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty cool. Um, that's a lovely touch that is. I yeah. thought that was like, and I think that's you know that's another really good example of like that kind of just genius that runs through mm. Wattery. Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, there's just so many different types of designs, ones based on animals, mythology. Mm. The, because a lot of the levels have such good themes, they just lend themselves well to yeah to a good design that ties in with that particular level or, or, the, or the actual uh, villain, the human villain, and their kind of obsessions or hang-ups. <laughs> Because there's a bounty hunter, isn't there? Um, who's, yeah. Who's obsessed with cash because he's constantly broke. Yes. Yeah. And he's kind of a sort of musketeery, sort of Zoroy type of character. Well, like, yeah, he's Zoro character, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. So he's kind of uh, you know got one that's kind of themed around him and his kind of quest for cash. Yeah. It's just, there's just so many ideas in this show. Yeah, and and you know the one um, the Savage Brothers one that combines mm-hmm. um, that that first one I think is like a really really cool design. Mm. And then the one they get for like the the last bit of the series, um, you know, looks a lot like the Gaplant from Zeta Gundam. You know, mm. it's got that green and purple and red sort of color scheme. You know, yeah. and a lot of features like the Gaplant, almost like it's got the mono eye and everything. Um, yeah, and Himiko's dad's one's kind of ninja themed because they're both ninjas and has a big shuriken yeah. and. Yeah, and actually that one I I really really like. Um, yeah, Rujin cool Maru I think is a really really neat design. Mm-hmm. And inevitably we get some mid series upgrades. Mm-hmm. So Ryu Jin becomes Ryu King Maru. Mm-hmm. And he combines with Kurama's bird uh, mecha with Sujin his Maru. own right. Sujin Maru, that's yeah. it. Yeah, 
you know, which is I think is a really neat design in mm-hmm. its own right. And then Himiko and Shibaraku's mechas, they mm-hmm. become the king versions yes, that's as right. well, very, very late in the series um, as well. So, you know, they all, the main mecha kind of get their, their mid-series or late-series yeah. upgrades. Even after Sujin Maru is uh, destroyed, he has like a sort of spirit form that is assimilated mm. by Ryujin Maru, and then Ryujin Maru can transform it into the phoenix form, into yes. a sort of bird one, which is another kind of transformation that he can do on top of the upgrade. With the upgrade, Wataru gets this sort of cool armor as well, doesn't he? And mm. a cape, you know. So he is yes, more like yes. he is more like the savior kind of warrior of legend. So that also ties into what you were talking about is about the growth of his character. You know, at one point he does kind of become the legendary hero. Yeah, he does become the the true savior mm. of of Sokai, doesn't he? So mm-hmm. uh, Mount Sokai's. Yeah, I, I think there's um, just a load of you know the death character, his mecha. There's one where it's like a hockey player, which is like really neat <laughs> yeah. as well. And the wrestler guy as well. Yeah, yeah, the wrestler guy. <laughs> yeah, um, Tiger's one as well. You know, with the long hair. You mm-hmm. know, the gold, that gold Man. one, which I'm sure is a nod to Saint Seiya. Yeah, it's, um, it's that's that's a good shout actually. Yeah. So that one, I think, is you know, I, it's full of really, really neat. Mm. mecha designs you yeah know, these squat you know really inventive as well which is what i really yeah, like I mean, you know, th- really 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 inventive the thing is is that they take the squat super deformed form of them and make the most of that with clever yeah yeah things especially in terms of how the weapons work and how their transformations yes. work and things and because they are kind of squat even outside of combinations there are scenes when they help each other like you know where Sujin Maru yeah. will be carrying Ryujin Maru in his claws and he's yes. kind of able to attack an enemy from underneath or something and it's not strictly yeah. speaking a combination but it's a way that the mechas help each other because of the each shape. Each other, yeah. Mm. Clever that. Yeah, it's, yeah, very clever. Very, very inventive. Um, again, not really seen anything quite like that up until that point in the, the previous history of, mm. of mecha anime. It's kind of credit um, to Sunrise and the way they've, they've obviously looked at the form factor of these things and thought, well, how can yes. we make a good action scene out yeah. of that? And yeah, it's it's, it's really, just really well done in general, yeah. And I think that, again, ties in quite nicely into like the animation because mm. I think it's a very Sunrise oh, yes. show. <laughs> I mean, you can clearly, so. <laughs> clearly see it was produced by Sunrise. Mm. There's the way characters are cut and shaped and mm-hmm. there's kind of little movements and, you know, the way characters are framed or scenes are framed. And mm. it's like, oh, it's just very, very familiar. Yeah, you know, and I never you're... got tired of seeing the same sequences again because they're just so mm. good. Yeah, because the, the production quality is really, really good in this. It's pretty consistent. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, you know, it's it's really good and it's really consistent. And I think that they put such dynamic flourishes into mm. those sequences. Even just the way Ryujin Maru runs towards the screen with his clank, clank, clank. He kind of runs towards the kind of viewer and then the perspective changes and it's the camera's always moving and... Mm. It's and you know when he kind of does this kind of stance and kind of glows at the end of it, yes. it's kind of very dynamic, super robot-y and yeah, because like there's there's no shortcuts in it, you know. Mm. There's there's a lot of fluidity in it. There's a lot of individual motion on the screens, you know. All those, you know, we've mentioned before, you know, the things like the you know black smoke and his smoke and the, the guy with the little clouds above him. Mm-hmm. All the way through this, there's really brilliant little t- animation touches oh, and yeah. detail in it which really surprised me for a like 80s kids tv show especially one with such a high episode count that was produced over mm. such a short space of time i mean it could have been a production nightmare in terms of quality mm. the actual quality of the animation i was 
really impressed with because mm. it looks good. I mean, it really, really yeah, it is a nice looking show. I think it does, and they never um, seem to really skimp on any of the battles. Or no, anything. you know the the battles are all really good, and despite the amount of comedy in the series, you know there's there is a real gravitas put towards some of the battles and drama. Mm. And you know there are yeah. for a kids show there are there are bits where you kind of feel like the heroes are in real peril. You, you know they're mm. going to win in the end, but there's there's some pretty sort of edgy seat moments in there with the battles yeah. and the mega stuff. It doesn't always give you what you expect in that regard. And despite having a kind of formula, it's it's good at subverting your expectations, even when it comes to the sort of mega and stuff, you know, and the power ups and stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really really good looking show. Um, I absolutely um, love that scene when um, Ryujin Maru and and uh, and and Waru confronts uh, Duagada at the end, and there's just this bit where um, Ryujin Maru's kind of actual dragon spirit sort of bursts out of um, out of the mecha. Yeah, and he's kind of yeah. and he rides he rides the dragon towards uh, Duagada, and it's just completely silent as he kind of goes towards him, and the credits roll. It's like oh. Yeah, it's on. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is a great cliffhanger. That bit, it is. You yeah. know, it really, really is. Yeah, I decided just because I just thought that was a real kind of epic sort of. You're going to watch next episode. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I bet um, kids were on the edge of the seat at that point. In oh yeah, imagine having to wait a week to see the the, the final bit of that. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and then you know the other thing I think from the production point of view is. Um, Toyo Ashida's character designs because you can mm. clearly see. Yes, even in Chibi know, form, uh, you can see his yeah his hand in it definitely. You, you can see his touch, can't you? Um, yeah. I mean, some of the yeah the sort of jaws and mm. um and you know I think because even like some of the Savage Brothers stuff, they you know it's like it's almost like that comedy esque version of a character from Fist and the North Star. Yeah, you know. It's interesting because obviously the style of uh, Fist and Star is a lot sort of from the manga, which which had different creators. Mm. But Ishida also has a, it's, his creation of characters is very much along those lines, and it fits yeah. very well with the uh, Baronson and, and Hara characters from uh, Fist because they do have those kind of shaped faces. Yeah, but he does have this kind of tendency to have these kind of you know big sort of square heads and chins and things on the kind yes. of macho yeah. characters and stuff. Um, and you see a lot of his effects, you know, you see effects that occur in a lot of his films, you know, like background sort of effects and things like that. Yeah. That I've seen, um, you know, a few times. So that is interesting as well. And the music's pretty good in this show. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It, it's got great music, I think. Yeah. Mm. I think it's got a, an excellent opening theme and I, I still, it's quite catchy. I mean, I still find myself humming that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then. Absolutely. Um, and, and the ending theme is, is quite catchy as well. Like it's Yeah. And it also, it's funny because we've talked about this multiple times over the course of the show, but, you know, there'll be an episode that ends on a really dramatic cliffhanger and then you get yeah. this really cheery music. And the characters are all dancing. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and like, you know, even um, even at the point in which, you know, Karama's quite a sort of sour character, you know, he's kind of dancing away <laughs> with his wings, you know, his, his arms kind of just... <laughs> boogieing <laughs> and it's hilarious because it can sometimes end on a really dark note like Daltanius yeah. Um, yeah. you know previously and then you get the really cheery outro where the characters yeah. dance <laughs> so that is always funny when it's, it's a bit of a tonal shift but the opening has really awesome animation and I like the way the yeah. opening changes to reflect the sort of evolving character roster mm. which is something you find often 
in shows. Yeah. But, uh, but the way it's done is particularly good. The way it, f- it goes from a focus on Karama to a focus on Tiger and yeah. you get a different yeah, scene of Duakadar a... um, at the beginning, kind of in the Demon Fortress and stuff. Yeah, and then you get the Demon Seven Castle. Dragons in the in the, in it as well. Mm. I mean, it's one of those things. It's I sometimes think the problem with some things it kind of all, often gives a little bit too yes, much away it does um yeah with and a lot I, of shows I think it the does. final opening sequence with the seven dragons i mm. think kind of alludes a bit too much to mm. what's going to happen in those final sort of five or six episodes and the, the other bit of music that i want to talk about is the the mystery music in inverted commas mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel that bit of music's almost a little bit too much of a giveaway because it's like oh right okay so this is where we're going to learn about the next clue mm. or the you know the revelation of the MacGuffin or whatever whatever mystical you know, object they've got to mystical retrieve. object they've got to find or whatever you know it's it's like that oh, might be oh. a bit of a side effect of it being kids sure you know but yeah because it it quite clearly signals you've got to pay attention to this bit <laughs> yeah kids. pay attention kids yeah. plot coming up it's <laughs> plot, plot, plot point coming up <laughs> pay attention because <you know? laughs> it's like typical like mysterious twinkly synthy kind of music you know it's yeah. like this music tells you exactly what's happening this bit of the episode the recap music so. has a little bit of a feel of that as well the sort of previously on Wattery thing, yes. you know, it's kind of feels yeah. a little bit mysterious and sort of like, ooh, yeah. look, look, look yeah. at what but happened what's last happening. time. It's, it's getting, yeah. it's, stuff's getting uh, real, you know, it's, it's getting edgy seat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to check out this subgenre of mecha shows because although I'd seen the Brave shows, which are, you know, of, quite a few of them that are targeted towards kids, Mm. This is again another sort of subgenre that feels much more sort of laser focused towards really small kids, but it, but it's one that I hadn't checked out previously, so it's really interesting to have finally seen this. Yeah, and like I said I'd I'd seen those handful of episodes, mm-hmm. you know, in the late two thousands, mm-hmm. and then kind of learning again around that time, kind of understanding. I saw a bit more of it. I'd seen that, so I was kind of intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that you know it constantly cropped up on various forums and stuff and people always constantly referring to it and you know there's always pictures of it everywhere and then understanding maybe about 10 years ago i remember reading a a blog the name of he's quite a a, a prolific blogger and his name's just escaped me but there was a thing about there about the relationship with galat mm-hmm. i've seen galat raw so mm-hmm. i kind of understood you know where that that sd stuff and and then after and then after that i'd watched um Zabungle. Mm-hmm when that got subbed maybe 10 years ago so as well. So you understood the DNA of it, if you like. Yeah, so I kind of got all of that. Um, and then, like, Lonely Chaser, he's subbing Galat at the moment. He's, like, half a dozen episodes in. And then, like you say, Gango's with, uh, subbing Granzor. And I've watched the... the that uh, That's a series I haven't seen. So, again, I had, I've had i watched, the you know, a handful of the, the episodes because I think he's about a dozen episodes in Gango at the moment, isn't he? Mm-hmm. On, yeah, that's right. Or so on, on Granzor. So I've seen a bit of that. So, yeah... And this whole subgenre, so, you know, I've seen a lot of the NG Knight Lamuni mm-hmm. anime as well. So, you know, that's, I've seen all of the first series. I've seen Fire um, and Fresh on that. And I've seen the Reunite um, OVAs. I haven't watched the full TV series on that, but from what I understand, the, the OVAs are a retelling. Mm. So I'd seen all of those. And as I say, having seen the first handful of episodes of Watery, I kind of knew what, knew what I was in for. I was letting myself <laughs> in for. I kind of knew what I was expecting. But to be honest, you know, actually, I think even if I compare like NG Night Lamuni to this, I mean, this I think is actually a an absolutely fantastic mm. show. 
I can um, see why its legacy is endured in Japan for so long with yeah, new merchandise and shorts yeah. and things and stuff like that. I can completely see that because I think NG Knight, you know, is very formulaic and I mean, I thought it was, I think it's quite an entertaining series, mm. um, you know, and I've, I've quite enjoyed, because um, again, I kind of watched that all back to front because Fire got fan, so the original series of that didn't get completely fan subbed, but Fire did. So mm, the Western experience I'd watched again. Fire, yeah, so <laughs> I'd watched Fire and Fresh, and then when Discotech released the original series, watch that, so I'm going to go back and watch you know, it all in, order. In, <laughs> all in order now, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's lovely when you can actually watch stuff in chronological order. <laughs> so uh you know so wataru um but I, I actually was a bit taken aback with like how clever wataru was how much detail how it mixed things up because mm. it's not completely linear yeah i mean it is you know it it, it mixes it up a little bit the way yeah. the characters and the you know all the antagonists play out i like the um, fact it gives you an idea that it's always going to have the structure then it kind of you know breaks its own rules a little bit mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I actually, you know, I will definitely go and watch the sequel series and OVAs from this now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's definitely, you know, really spurred me on to actually want to watch Mm. all of it. Certainly, Um, yeah. You know, this is something I would really recommend people Mm. to go and see. You know, don't be put off by the fact that it's it's aimed at a younger audience. Yeah. Because I think that is probably, there are probably some mega fans out there who are a little bit Mm. kind of like, oh, well, it's for kids, you know, I'm not sure it's for me. You know, I think maybe as I sort of went into it, there was possibly a tiny, tiny little bit of that. I like to be open-minded. I like to check out, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. I, like, I like to just understand more about the history of anime in general, you know, outside of Mecca as mm. well. And so I was going into it with a totally open mind. But I think maybe there was a tiny, tiny bit of that in the back of my mind, if I'm completely honest. Like, it might not be as enjoyable as an adult. But no, I think yeah. that was thrown out of the window by the end of the first episode, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you know, as we, as I said earlier, you know, I got into you know the dozen episodes or so, and I was thinking, oh, actually, maybe that initial mm. kind of enthusiasm and it's worn off a bit. It was kind of worn off, but then you know, it mixes it up through you know levels three and four and stuff, and I was mm. like, you know, I was right back on track again. So, mm. um, it brought you back from the <laughs> yes, yeah. this is this can be enjoyed by adults. Mm. I think it's got a lot for everybody in it. I mean, there's yeah, so many really, like, good... really laugh out loud funny gags in it. Yeah, that yeah. you just would not expect. <laughs> that are quite so subversive. you know, in, in terms of um, ratings, mm. Craig, you know, where where does this sit for you? I am. I would probably say about a nine, actually. Yeah. Do you know? I'm apart from that. You know, that f- little disappointment in that epilogue you know, in bit. that final episode, yeah. that epilogue episode. You know, which I think. Or what should have been more of an epilogue, shall we say? Oh, than it was yes exactly mm. I almost Spoiled didn't it give it a, a nine bit. because of that yeah I, 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 I teeter on this eight to nine bit mm. because I think that that ending it could have ended on such a good mm. there's the opportunity to be almost perfect I think mm. with that with what they did in the final episode and the fact they didn't kind of pushes me towards an eight mm. But eight and a half. It's <laughs> it is kind of, isn't it? Because mm. I don't want to take away from how good the rest of it is. Yeah, it's really, really enjoyable. Um, it, because there is, I wouldn't say not watch it because of that. Yeah, exactly. Know? And because there is a definitive ending and everything is wrapped up neatly. Mm. I mean, you could argue that on a rewatch, you don't even really have to watch that last episode when Wataru skates home. That could be the ending yeah. for you. I, yeah. I don't think it's it's awful the last episode i mean it's got some amusing sort of bits in where you catch up with mm. the characters shirabaki has been selling zanjin maroon telephone cards as merchandise yes, yeah. <laughs> which goes back to the whole meter thing we were talking about <laughs> yeah the um i would still say watch it but uh you know even if it doesn't neatly kind of bookend the series it's not a terrible yeah. last episode but like no, you say, no. Yeah. it does 
spoil what could have been perfect a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I, I think maybe it, that was it, down there. You know, the fact they were making another show that was good that had to be out in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of production um, issue to that, but. I mean, considering um, the production schedule, they did a pretty good job. I mean, yeah, we've I talked mean, about how fast some of these shows are made, and to make a yeah. show as good as this, I think that is pretty impressive for some yeah, of this stuff, really. Yeah, I agree. I think, ultimately, it's a bit of a disappointment, that, but like I say, it doesn't detract from how good the rest of it is. No. And I think it could have been, you know, right, it could have gone from being a very, very, very good show to being an almost perfect show. Mm, absolutely. You know, that's and that's where the disappointment is because I think it, I, you know, I've really enjoyed watching this. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Mm. Um, I think it does show the kind of scope and breadth there is in mecha anime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I'm going to keep it, I'm going to keep it as a name, but I, I did very yeah. much teeter um, between the... Uh, 8.5 and 9 myself I yeah. have to say so just kind of keep that in, in mind when you but, when you check it out but yeah definitely 100% recommendation okay and that wraps us up it does indeed So that brings us to the end of our review of uh, Spirit Hero Rataru. Uh, we'll have a look at what we're going to record next time. So it had occurred to me, even though we have covered some uh, Super Robot stuff, we haven't actually covered a Go Nagai Toei sort of show yet. It does seem like a pretty big uh, omission considering. Well, it does. Yeah, I was thinking. They're a big yeah, part given of the history the- of these shows. <laughs> Giving us, yes, the history of these shows and that. So uh, we ought to go back and do that. So we're going to do the 1975 super robot show, Steel Jig, and review that. And then our next episode after that will be our Macross 7 review for the third part of the retrospective. So, right, where you can find us. So find us on Twitter at RetroMecha. We have a blog that accompanies the podcast, RetroMechaPodcast.com dot wordpress.com Craig tell us where we can find your blog yeah I'm on uh, animeheadsretroworld.wordpress.com and you can find me on twitter at animeheadsretro and you can find me and my other podcast on twitter at retroanime you can find this podcast on soundcloud itunes amazon spotify castbox you know any uh, podcast hosting service um, that runs RSS feeds by searching for Retro Mecha Podcast. So that brings us to the end of today's very interesting and very long <laughs> talk <laughs> about uh, Spirit Hero Ataru. As we said, there's a lot to talk about. Um, so we, we, we tried to condense it, but um, I think this is going to be a very long podcast. Indeed. I mean, I'm sure there's things we've missed which we're going to kick ourselves over yes, later, but yes. that is the nature of podcasting, isn't it? You can't get everything in there. 
And all the more reason why you sh- listeners, you should go out and watch it because yeah. there is all the stuff that we haven't talked about. Absolutely. And I've been meaning to you. get around to it for absolutely ages, knowing its status, but I held off over the last few years because of the fact that I knew we were going to talk about it. So nice to get some fresh impressions, isn't it? And it's good yes. to get around to checking it out finally. It is. It is indeed. Okay. And on that note, then, we will say mm-hmm. goodbye. See you yeah. later, Craig. Take care. Bye. Bye, everybody. The opening and closing theme music to the podcast is Molten Alloy from Purple Planet Music. All other music used within the podcast is copyrighted to its respective creators.